Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Brazil. Do you wake from your finest fantasy? Only to return to your daily nightmare. Is your mother about to look younger than you do? Does the woman of your dreams... I love you. In my dreams, I love you. ...still have a few doubts? Then it's time to take a stand. To break out of your dull, humdrum life and into Brazil. You're so pleased. You can make it right this way. It's about flights of fantasy and the nightmare of reality. We're all in this together. Terrorist bombings. I don't think it involves anything unsavory. Hey, trust me, Jack. And late night shopping. True love. You don't trust me? Trust you? Trust you? The man who hijacks my truck, loses me my job, has every security man in town looking for me? Of course I trust you. I was only trying to help. Yeah. And creative plumbing. There's your problem. Can you fix it? No, I can't. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bandits, Jonathan Price. Sam, what are we going to do with you? Robert De Niro. I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Catherine Hellman and Michael Palin. We've always been close, haven't we? Yes, Jack. Until this all blows over, just stay away from me. Brazil, it's only a state of mind. We're all in it together, kid. Tonight, Sharon and I are doing another commissioned show that literally would never have happened without the contribution of Jameis Enright. I never much liked or understood this film, but $150 is a pretty good motivator to go digging. Now, there's a couple of commissions currently on the go for the next few weeks and months, and two that have been asked for a lot are Stranger Things and The Expanse. Because of the fact that these are 8 and 10 episode TV shows and we haven't even seen The Expanse yet, I am setting the price on these commissions at $450 because of the extra amount of time we have to put in to cover everything. And I think for that, you'll get like a two-parter show, like a, like a lengthy one rather than like your, mm. your, your standard size. Well, if we're going to cover epi- every episode... Well, yeah, that's the thing. ...at a decent level. You end up having to be exhaustive. That's why we don't normally do TV, so... Yep, 450, we figure that's fair. That means that you guys definitely should club together for this one. So if you want to make one of these shows happen, get in touch on Twitter at School of Movies and I can add you to our list of prospective pledges. Some people are putting up amounts like $25, which is absolutely fine. Can do that. If we get enough of you, I will let you all know when to donate via PayPal. Basically, like, you know, once it all adds up to 450, I'll let you all know. Just throw in all at once. Yeah, so don't send any money yeah, yet. Don't send. Oh, God, we sound like an infomercial. Don't send money now. <laughs> it's QVC or something. No, seriously, don't send money now. There's, oh, one of the listeners really wants us to make Stranger Things, and he is hovering over the donate button. I'm like, no, just hold on, hold on, hold on. We'll, we'll wait. We'll wait to see who else contributes. Because ultimately, 
you know, I want to make sure that it's fair and that you guys pay what you're able to, rather than like relying too much on one person. Um, you got another idea for a commission show? Again, Twitter is good, as is Facebook, as is the forum, the Patreon. Email us at gonzoplanet at gmail.com. It's all fine. And you can suggest anything as long as we can reserve the right to veto it or suggest something else. Like someone said, Contagion. And that is a grim movie which made me wash my hands a lot for months. But little else. I mean, we, uh, we couldn't really talk about that for hours. But luckily, that person also wants The Expanse. So, we'll go that direction. Okay, back to Brazil. The 1985 dystopian sci-fi from Terry Gilliam. Now, let's synopsize this first because people are definitely going to get lost because it's a long film and we've got a lot to talk about. And, uh, it, you know, if you don't know where you are in the film, it's going to be like, oh, so what's happening here? I got lost watching it twice. So, let's synopsize. It's dystopian, but it's not set in the future. When people were uh, comparing it to 1984, um, almost immediately when it came out, um, a year late, and um, uh, they, they were like, oh, it's so futuristic. But he makes it very clear at the beginning that it's somewhere in the 20th century and it's not supposed to be in the future. It's kind of a side universe, a pocket universe, a, a different version of 1985. Or uh, a really good way I saw it uh, said was it's retrofuturism, which is what someone in the 1940s would expect the 1980s to be like. And now for us, retrofuturism is what they thought the future would be like when they made Alien. And, uh, you know, that kind of like CR, like Blade Runner. You know, that, that's what they thought the future would be like in, in 2017, and now it's totally not. But there's still that kind of lovely parallel version of the 70s there, and this is kind of a parallel 80s. So it's retrofuturism, and it's, it's kind of a, an unspecified time. Hmm. There is a beauty in that kind of uh, parallel world rather than future world because hmm. it, it doesn't date quite as much when you look back on... Oh, why do I think I did that for New Century? Well, yeah, Originally exactly. it was going to be a sci-fi with crazy new tech mm. and some of the things I originally wrote have now come to pass. Yes. Um, but, I mean, it's it's been used to great effect in a n number of, um, of sci-fi movies. I mean, the, the Matrix very deliberately chose a style of technology that was actually already slightly dated when yeah. it came out. Yeah. Um, Chunky analog. It, it kind of it fixes that the events to a very specific point in mm. human history. Mm. Um, but it means it never feels ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. Whereas you look at something from like the 40s where everybody's from space wearing white vinyl and carrying ray guns mm. and it's like, oh, come on. Never like that. No. <laughs> Interestingly, though, this feels 80s because of how influential it was. Mm. It was influential on advertising. If you look, there are like, re like lots of very Brazil-style adverts saying, do you have a hard day at work? Do you feel like a robot? Well, drink this Miller Lite. And um, it, there, there are a lot of uh, inspirations from Brazil that then carried on. 
specifically throughout the 80s. Mm, yeah, although later as well. I mean, we, we mentioned Bioshock while mm, we were watching mm. it, but I would say Fallout as well. Um, mm. Fallout 4 particularly. There's uh, sort of the advertising, as you say, is, is of a very specific nature that's yeah. been satirised in a number of locations. Fallout 3 had that as well. Okay. But, um, mm. yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the plot, like, let's nail it down to, like, really, really simple. There's a guy who works in an office. He's miserable, but he dreams of being free. And then there's a series of clerical errors, which uh, leads to his personal investigation into a man who is wrongfully arrested, tortured and killed. And then he ends up mixing up with terrorists originally against his will and uh, ends up getting tortured to death himself. What? Tortured to madness himself. The end. That's Brazil, folks. Let's, uh, uh, it's, it's a horrible ending when you see it for the first time. And it takes a lot of like, re- like re-watching it to, to, to really get the gist. Um, and we're going to give you as much gist as we can. Uh, the man in question is uh, played by Jonathan Price. His name is Sam Lowry. And uh, there's a very... We'll treat this as though you haven't seen Brazil because it's better that way. Because otherwise, if we start talking about stuff without, like, just assuming everyone's seen it, um, it's going to be very esoteric and difficult to listen to. So it's going to be kind of a Zardoz. But this is, like, Zardoz is a... a, a, I was going to say, Zardoz is a future dystopian film which is really weird and didn't quite work and wasn't successful when it came out. Um, And Brazil... (laughs) It's... It's actually remarkably similar in a kind of way. Um, but uh, in Brazil, it's clearly satire, whereas in Zardoz, it's sort of a humorless satire where they're kind of holding up a black mirror to civilization and it's so um, self serious, kind of, in its absurdity that it becomes funny to watch. Mm. I think part of that is that it's. I have very rarely seen Sean Connery taking the piss out of himself. Yeah. Possibly The Rock, but even then, he was playing it pretty straight. Uh, he's kind of fun in Highlander. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But he does seem to take himself very seriously in Zardoz, and because he is, it's a bit difficult yeah. to gauge how everybody else is taking it. Jonathan Price, I mean, I haven't, I'd never seen Brazil before. Mm-hmm. Oh, you've never seen it? No, before we sat down and watched oh, it for this. Oh, okay. Um, so actually, when we watched it with the commentary the other day, that was literally that was the, the first, first time. time I'd ever we seen it. We watched it with commentary first so that we could really get our heads into it when we actually sat down and watched mm-hmm. it properly all the way through. I think that was actually the right thing to do because... Yeah. Rather than, like, when I first watched it, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why is it still going on? It's an hour and 40. It's I just so don't... long. It's so long. And it feels really long as well. There's, there is a point in the movie where it naturally feels like it's ending. And then it sort of and goes back to the beginning I again. it was finishing there. And I was like, okay, that feels like a sort of a comfortable... It's around about when he gets his cubicle. And it's like, we know you hate being in a little office. You don't have to make that thinking, point again. I was actually thinking of the bit where he actually gets to bed Jill. Oh, that? Yeah. Oh, right. When the, it pulls back. Uh, yeah, that kind of yeah. felt like an end. Yeah, okay, yeah. That, that, that and then felt it went like back end. in and did another 20 minutes. But like I said, the, the bit when he gets to the cubicle is kind of like the beginning again because you're going back to the... Like, the, there was a way 
of doing this in shorter order. There was, there were ways, and we'll discuss them later, that they could have made this more palatable. And a cut exists where they butchered it. And I've got details on that at the end. Um, But I'm in this weird, like, sort of halfway house between, like, being totally resentful of this butchered cut and wanting to defend the artist, Terry Gilliam, and his vision, and going, wanting to take it away from him, going, Terry, 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 we also need people to see it. And there are ways you can do that without losing the central tenets of this, which the butchered cut absolutely lost the central tenets. Like, just like, do we need quite so much corridor back and forth thing? You know, do we need this scene? Does it achieve something that maybe has already been achieved? Okay. Um, It's weird because, like, I now like this film and I really didn't like it before. So thank you, Jameis. Um, And, and, you know, this opportunity to actually do it. Uh, But it's a tough sell. Mm. Like, we're going to have to work overtime to really make people go, oh, I want to see that. I think it's going to depend on what kind of thing you're looking for in it, really. Um, I mean, for me, like I said, this was the first time I'd ever seen it. Uh, But I am not unfamiliar with dystopian Mm sci-fi. And you mentioned um, about the parallels with 1984. I think any dystopian material that came out in the mid-80s was kind of inevitably going to get that comparison. But there was a... Not the Terminator. Okay, fair point. Um, (laughs) But, uh, I mean, the other... Not Robocop. A little bit Robocop. Uh, A little bit. Well, the the idea of the... I mean... Well, not Blade Runner. Right. Okay, Blade Runner, yes, authoritarian people really? making decisions about stuff. There's, there's a few little threads. Okay. Um, and Robocop, definitely, because you've got this organisation that's in charge. Admittedly, they're more capitalist than they are fascist, okay. but it's still there. Terminator, no, but Terminator's not really set in the future. There's future stuff going on, but that's kind of after the fact when everything's fallen apart. Yeah. It's not looking at the organisation that's in charge of anything. Um, the uh, But the other um, thing that it made me think of was The Handmaid's Tale, which the original Margaret Atwood novel came out in the mid-80s, and that's very much in the vein of um, an authoritarian government who makes decisions based on moral absolutes, mm. and they are... Very specifically, they're controlling women and what women should be used as reproductive organ yeah, banks, it's a, it's a different it's a different slant to Brazil. Um, Brazil seems very much based on sort of the British obsession with bureaucracy, mm, um, yeah. which is is more, I would say, 60s, 70s than it really is 80s. Things had kind of started fading a bit by that point. Mm-hmm. But Gilliam really, really seems to hate that. Yeah. Um, but I, I he think had an the, axe to grind, most Absolutely. Definitely. But I, I do think the 1984 parallels are very definitely there. I mean, the fact that you've got the Ministry of Information, the fact that you've got this whole, mm. you know, you, you can't even think about going against them. That That is very 1984. Interesting point. Terry Gilliam had not read 1984 when he made this film. Well, I mean, ultimately, Orwellian tones to things did kind of permeate popular culture. I mean, it it still carried on after the 80s. That's the thing. I mean, Children of Men has tones of that as well. Hunger Games. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's not gone away. Um, But... um, Oh, Equilibrium. Mm. <laughs> we're not talking about equilibrium today. We don't talk about equilibrium. No. Now we're going to get tweets. Why don't you talk about equilibrium? 
equilibrium because it's shit. I'll tell you why we don't talk about equilibrium because we start talking about equilibrium, we're going to end up talking about what was that other one? By the ultraviolet. Same ultraviolet, which was appalling. Because men don't stand obligingly in a hexagon for you. No. While you shoot them. Not that's that I've that's that's problem number one, and it's second number three of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, mm. so Brazil. Um, okay, so here's the thing. Sharon and I have uh, podcasted a lot in the past, and uh, it tends to be that our two-man shows are a little bit more low-key because we kind of know how each other thinks about it, and so we have no one to surprise, no one to discuss in a kind of an, oh, way. So we have deliberately withheld our notes, our workings out from one another, so that we can discover stuff about what we saw. And especially the fact that Sharon's not seen this before uh, will make for quite an interesting, interesting uh, series of... And, and I really do mean that in the correct context. An interesting series of uh, exchanges of ideas. Mm, okay. Maybe. Or, or it won't. <laughs> Perhaps. We can't guarantee interesting Or things. I'm going to say something and you're just going to look at me and go, No. No. <laughs> well, no, like, you just say, well, that's what I thought. And I'll go, oh, okay. Of course, sorry, I, forget. I keep forgetting, you're not my A-level English teacher. Yeah, no, I'm not going to cross out what you've written in red biro. Yeah, and say, I'm sorry, your interpretation of this poem is wrong. <laughs> How can an interpretation of a poem be wrong? I'm, so- I'm going to take this one to the grave. Such an axe to grind. <laughs> Hi there, I want to talk to you about ducks. Do your ducks seem old-fashioned? Out of date, Central Service's new duck designs are now available in hundreds of different colours to suit your individual taste. Hurry now, while stocks last to your nearest Central Service's show. Designer colours to suit your demanding taste. Central Services! Sam Lowry is uh, Jonathan Price. We don't actually meet him straight away. Now, the the standard for this type of movie is to meet him really, really soon, really early. Um, I think you don't meet him for like, like seven or eight minutes or so. Mm. Uh, it, it begins uh, on a storefront, and the storefront is uh, a TV um, advertisement for Ducts, D-U-C-T-S, which they're trying to make fashionable to have in your home. The, yeah, this was something that I noticed about the uh, the the design for the the city. At first, I was thinking it was like air or um, or something like that, but I think it's electricity. Oh yeah. If you look at um, Sam's mother's apartment later on, she has fashioned up ducts leading to all the lamps in her house mm. but they're big thick chunky silver. utilitarian just yeah everything looks very workmanlike it's horrible to look at the aesthetic yeah. of this movie is ugly as hell mm. it's it's kind of reminiscent i suppose of that sort of eastern european um soviet block soviet block yeah. uh we can't afford luxurious stuff but we do the best we can with what's cheap mm. Um, Everyone seems to be of roughly the same class as well. The uh, the underclasses seem to be homeless 
and that's about it. To a point, yeah, I think there is. There's definitely, definitely a very upper lines, upper though. class. Yeah, I was but it's thinking... like workers. Like workers are like eighty percent. Mm. The homeless are ten percent, and you barely see them. Mm. And then the super one percent, like we see so many of them yeah. that it feels more like ten percent. I think it's it's like any stylized interpretation of the class system, um, particularly the class system in Britain, which, despite the fact that it is two thousand and seventeen, is still mm. a lot better delineated than it ought to be. We had an early old and experienced and rich country well managed um <laughs> sorry <laughs> my politics are showing um we should the... be more trigger happy that literally means prone to excessive violence at a moment's notice the lines that you see are not so much in the people as they are in the houses and like you said the the underclass does seem to be the people who don't have any home at all mm-hmm. and have to live out on the streets mm-hmm. then you've got um the level of the workers which um the bottles Mm. Their apartment is small and cosy, but not particularly smart or or pleasant. Um, And it's very cramped, considering that it's, uh, you know, the the parents and two children. Um, I would say Sam's apartment's probably around about the same level, but his is a little bit smaller because Mm. he's a a single man. But his mother's apartment... His mother's apartment is very lush. It's very lush, but it's it's got this kind of dusty, faded grandeur to it. It kind of reminds me of J.F. Sebastian's Mm. um, hotel room that he lives in in Blade Runner. Home again, home again, dickity dick, mm. that one. Yeah, uh, well, again, that to me, it's it's more decorative than the whole Soviet bloc style, um, but it does have that feel of, you know, this is what we had. We mm. have made what we wanted out of what was available. Yeah. It's defined as well in style by the circular spiral staircase Mm. leading up to it. It's like that is such a huge aspect of the building that everything else is kind of subsumed to Mm. it. That also filters into the thematic um, stylings of the film as well, but I'll get to that. Gilliam didn't mention any of my theories on interpretation. Oh, no. Yeah. I don't even think he knows that he's doing it. Yeah, I, I will get to expand on this later on, but basically this film is either a Freudian dream or a Jungian nightmare, depending on which way around you're looking at it. And, Can't um, it be both? Gilliam's obsessed with his mother. But he is a on. bit. Mm. Okay, so the, the plot runs thus, and this is the key plot thing that happens at the very beginning. First off, the uh, uh, shop with the TVs in it explodes, which is kind of like the beginning of Watchmen. It's also almost exactly the same as the beginning of Children of Men, which yeah. is the other thing that made me think of it. He's yeah. in the street, he goes to the shop, the shop goes boom. Yeah. And uh, then you pick up a lot of your... And they do this in at the beginning of Pacific Rim as well. You pick up a lot of the tone of what this world is mm. through the news reports and yeah. the TV interviews. And, and the posters. Yeah. You're, you're absorbing the culture of the world through the material that the people of that world mm. are surrounded by. And I love that. I think that is a brilliant way to introduce an environment because otherwise you run the risk of having your characters having to explain things and, my God, does that get old quickly. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like we're describing a comedy and it kind of is and it isn't. It really depends on your sense of humour. You might gut laugh at this the whole way through, especially if you've worked as a cubicle mouse. Mm. You might just be completely stony-faced the whole way through and, and feel a sense of desolation at it. It really just depends on what you bring to the table. Yeah. Well, I think satire is usually grouped as comedy, but it can be either comedy or horror, depending on which way you're looking at mm. it. It's a bit Black Mirror as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or Black Mirror's a bit Brazil. 
Um, so yeah, the, the the defining moment that happens after the place explodes because there is terrorist activity from people who are sick to death of the system being held in check by the iron claws of those in charge um, is that a guy is trying to get a fly out of his uh, lamp in the in an office where he's typing up uh, orders for a like for arrest and the fly falls in his typewriter and then multiple arrest orders go out for Mr. Tuttle, Mr. Tuttle, Mr. Tuttle, Mr. Buttle, Mr. Tuttle, Mr. Tuttle. And that means that one man named Mr. Buttle gets unnecessarily arrested, taken for torture and is then tortured to death. So basically we're... Well, we don't find that out. We don't find later. that out until later, but basically uh, it's, it's a grim scenario. Mm. Uh, Mr. Buttle is, is uh, at his home with his family watching TV. They're asking about, will Santa Claus come down the chimney? And I've got to mention Christmas at this point. It's mentioned in the film in a sort of a passing way, but basically they've commodified Christmas to the point where it's practically Christmas all year round. No one's experiencing any joy. Everyone's buying gifts for each other, but it's in this really, I have done the thing where I get you a gift thing. There is your gift. It is like um, Michael Palin has a whole bunch of the same gifts on his table, one of which he gives to uh, Jonathan Price later. And it, it really, like... This is Gilliam going, look, Christmas is supposed to be where you get your family something that they care about mm. for them so that they will be happy and you will be happy to see them happy. And that's what presents are supposed to be for. And it's supposed to be once a year. But this is, I suppose this is kind of like, well, I guess, you know, oh, what's this? Christmas starting in November now. Christmas starting in October now. Christmas starting in September now. And now it is. So when it starts starting in April... Just after uh, Easter. We have different holidays, guys. Then we're in Brazil town. Yeah. I think part of it, though, is um, one of the main themes that works its way through the whole of this is the the idea that we've got divorced from um, everything that involves feeling. Mm. And ultimately, Christmas is about... It's, it's a very emotional holiday. Yeah. And none of that is present. Yeah. No. Uh, the the little snippet of emotion that you get at this point is really, really important. And there is a seed planted here that I will come back to later. Um, it's very subtle, but Mrs. Bottle is reading her children the end of uh, The end of Christmas the Christmas Carol, Carol. yeah. And, and that's kind of referenced later on as well. Yeah, it is. Um, there's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that later though when we're talking about... Um, Can you do it now just in case you forget? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, basically, it's one of the later dreams that Sam has when um, he starts out attacking all the Skeksis-like creatures that mm. have got the baby faces. Yeah. And then he turns around to look at the golden samurai that appears. And when he turns back, they've all turned into... Well, it's, it's the Buttles and the various other... Um, um, underclass people that he's he's trampled on. walked past through this whole film. Yeah. They've been in the background, and they're all stood there in wearing sackcloth and and you know looking miserable. And Mrs. Buttle keeps asking him about where her husband's body's been taken. Mm -hmm. And the thing that popped into my head was human beings were my business, and the idea that that Sam by accepting his role within the machine has basically become like Scrooge. Not so much in the sense that he has money and therefore he can afford to trample on people, mm. but he is in a position to help. Yeah. And the people he helps are not the people he should be helping. Mankind should have been my business. Yeah, exactly. I wear the chains I wore in life.
Uh, it then cuts to the uh, after poor Mr. Battle gets dragged away by the SWAT team. Uh, it cuts to the office, and there's this lovely tracking shot going through the office, uh, which they had to kind of have someone walk across the shot at the end and then switch it round so that they could walk back through uh, at a different angle to make it seem longer. Um, and it's got this wonderful music the whole way through, which relates to Brazil. And I'll tell you right now what the hell Brazil is about in terms of how does this music relate to it. It's just the idea of escape. It's the uh, It came to uh, Gillian when he was sitting on a horrible, grotty beach in Grimsby or something, and um, he was listening to some much perkier music, and he was thinking to himself, well, wouldn't it be succinct in, in a film if, if, if somebody was in the, the most miserable sur- surroundings, but listening to, to something which was transportive, and uh, that would exemplify and symbolise mankind's desire to to not be held down by the system of his own making, which is what this is. Mm. Although there is a slight irony in that, in that Brazil is not simply an imaginary place that you can escape to. It's no. a real place that has its own system that is extremely oppressive. Oh, yeah. There's... God knows how much poverty in Brazil. It's a huge country. It's it's like it's the, almost the size of Europe in uh, uh, South America. It's huge. A lot of rainforest there as well. A lot of cubic centimeters. Yeah, yeah. You know, specifically, that, that it's not Brazil itself. It's the name of the song mm. yeah. that keeps turning up over and over again in different reorchestrations. Uh, and we get to see Ian Holm here as M. Kurtzman, who's this odd character who shows up at the beginning seems like he might be key to the plot the whole way through makes a couple more appearances around about up to the middle and then just never comes back again and he's um sam's boss and uh he is afraid of pretty much everything and he uh is very good at passing the buck and he is thus emblematic of a system that takes no responsibility for its mistakes which is what the film is again all about yeah and also they made this battle mistake and no one wants to own it yeah no one wants to say we absolutely fucked up yeah the um the other thing is as well because we need to here's the thing we fucked up. We need to make amends. Nobody says that. Mm. It's one of those sweep it under the carpet things. Pretend it didn't happen. But they, they this is the thing, though. It's they inhuman. end up doing more work to cover up the fact that they made a mistake than mm. they would have done by simply admitting that they made a mistake and trying to rectify it. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, Kurtzman, I think, is meant to be kind of emblematic of Sam's father, who is absent from all of this. I, mm. I believe he's dead. Um, I think his mum says something about your father would have been disappointed in your lack of ambition or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's kind of hinted at, but he, he really doesn't have much of a presence. But the fact that Kurtzman is his boss is also linked into this whole, um, the culture becomes your father, the, um, the, the system becomes You spend more time at work than you do with your family. Yeah. Absolutely. And that goes in with this whole grey bureaucracy thing that Gilliam seems quite so opposed to. Mm. Which is, I, I do wonder from watching this, how much time Gilliam spent as a cubicle mouse. Because it could be a week, it could be a minute, and he was like, no, this ain't for me. Or it could be 15 years. As far as I know, not a lot. His parents were British, but he was born in America and he didn't come to Britain until he was older. Mm. I mean, maybe he then got a job working... That kind of role, but if yeah. You've got, if you're of a certain mindset, it actually doesn't take that long at all to get a real bead on exactly how 
spirit crushing that kind of situation can be and you can be in a situation where your soul is reeling away from it going no this is wrong this feels wrong for me Mm. well there's there is a reason i believe and this is just my opinion if anybody wants to disagree with me that's fine um but there's a reason why the the social culture of britain has a tendency to veer between monday to friday afternoon Mm. you're trapped in this four-wall environment that you hate or at least merely tolerate, does not spiritually fulfil you, um, does not make the best of your talents and who you are as a person, but you put up with it because it provides you with basic sustenance and living arrangements. And then at the weekend, you go out and spend what little you have as surplus to get completely and utterly smashed so that you don't have to think about how miserable you are Monday to Friday p.m. Putting up with a horrible job is seen as a virtue rather than a problem absolutely and it is it is somewhat frustrating to see the the churn of that being considered to be all there is that the the level of employment opportunities is low enough that having that kind of job is actually seen as quite a promising thing because it's better than having no job at all. Mm. And going to schools which are supposed to educate and enlighten and nurture and actually end up kind of teaching you how to sit in a room full of people who are only able to get one thirtieth of the teacher's attention at any given time. Um, And basically it's a case of here you are, sit in this room until you're 18 and learn how to tolerate sitting in this room for the rest of your life. Learn how to tolerate it, learn how to do as you're told. So many school exercises are about, now what did we just ask you? Mm. Have you understood the question? Yeah. And anybody who's not British and wonders about that whole thing about why British people seem so repressed... That's is that why? Yeah. So anyway, finally we meet Sam Lowry, <laughs> and he's looking like Ziggy Stardust flying around in the clouds. He always reminded me of Rick Mail for some reason, with his long hair and mm. Ziggy Stardust uh, uh, thing over his eye, uh, and wearing you know shining armor. Icarus was the first thing that came to mind for me. Sam Lowry is Icarus. Hey. Right. So why? Why is he Icarus? Well, first off, Icarus is freedom. Yep. And Sam is trapped. Yep. And his dreams are literally the only place that he can get even a breath of fresh air. Bingo. Um, And ultimately, it's forewarning about the fact that Icarus's floor was to reach too high and uh, end up getting, well, not literally shot down, but melted down. Even in his dream, he's cautioning himself. Yeah. For even wanting this freedom. Yeah, that's what dreams do. Basically, from, from a... The perspective of sort of the Freudian Jungian um, psychoanalysis view on what purpose dreams serve, they are basically the conflict between your desire and your fear. Mm. Um, that you will dream about the things you want, <clears throat> and then part of your brain will then kick in and say, But this is why you can't have it. Mm. And it will do it all in symbols that hopefully you will on some level be able to understand. Yeah. Because your your subconscious doesn't talk in words, it speaks in images. Though sometimes your brain is very unhelpful. Absolutely, because it, it uses language that you don't necessarily understand. It's all pre-verbal stuff. It's... There you go, interpret that. <clears throat> yeah. Now, 
Gilliam works. And now here's that same dream again. You still haven't learned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and they get louder until you start interpreting them and then they get quieter again. But anyway, that's beside the point. But Gilliam it's actually works in exactly the point. Okay. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Gillian works in dreamscapes a lot. So I was kind of watching this film from the perspective of interpreting the whole thing like a dream. Mm -hmm. And so Sam's actual dreams were you dream within a dream that gives you the sort of symbolic messages for those characters. Um, And it's the, the overwhelming feeling of his desire to escape is absolutely palpable, which is why it's so ironic that... In the dream, he keeps putting Jill in a cage. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the this is Jill is a the human version of that he's yet to meet of a girl of his literal dreams uh, that he keeps seeing um, in front of him, kind of like a Valkyrie, but always seemingly caged in cloth or She's in metal. Muse. Uh, muse. There she, doesn't, you go. she doesn't speak much. She does a bit, but it's always kind of this breathy, she smiles, beckoning, sings, come hither, a little bit she of nipple. These, I was going to say, she's all dressed in chiffon, yeah. so it's all this flowing material. Um, she's idealised beyond imagination. Absolutely. There's, abs- there's no way, by the way, that if he met this real woman, she could possibly live up to all of this. Oh, uh. She couldn't fly, for a start. Well, yes, indeed. There is that. Mm. Um, he's woken by his alarm clock. and Well, actually, he's awoken by his boss, Ian Holm, calling him and saying, where are you? And then he checks his alarm clock and then has to hit it with a shoe to get it to start working again. And it's this huge, elaborate contraption. And it, it stopped working because there's too many bits to it. And it just made me think of Skype. <laughs> It made me think... That of, last upgrade totally bricked it. <laughs> well, like, Skype a few years ago worked fine. And then Microsoft and bought them. bits on. And Microsoft's um, Xbox Live chat was always patchy, but it was better than PlayStation Network. And then they bought Skype and installed that. And then both... Xbox Live Chat and Skype stopped working properly, and you can't get either of them to really work fully reliably. There are t- like when you're trying to like get a group chat together and you want to add someone to the conversation, it goes, "Well, you can't add that person because if you're calling them, you can't be talking to these other people." I don't understand what you could possibly be asking he- me here. Just make it a conference call. Well, like you'd need someone else who could do that. Like some something with conference call capabilities. Trust me, Skype, you can do this. I've seen you do this. I've spent ten years fucking doing it. Have they added premium features? I, not yet. Okay. Premium features say, being not stupid. Well, yeah. Normally, when they add premium features to something, it means they're about to start charging Mm. you for basic functionality. My favourite Skype recorder that got the best sound quality for this podcast is called (coughs) iFree Skype Recorder. And then Windows 10 came along, and it doesn't work with Windows 10. And then suddenly, something which worked fine now doesn't work and was totally unreliable. And it's like, right, so like, we'll record this, and no, it didn't record at all, anything at all. So the Windows 10, Windows in general, by the way, is an example of a technological advancement whereby, you know, it might be better than the last one. It might not be as good. It's kind of Russian roulette, really. It shouldn't be like that. Technological advancement should be, gets better all the time, shouldn't it? You would think, would you like Bob Hoskins to come around and hit it with a wrench? Oh my God, Bob Hoskins and the Super Mario Brothers come round. <laughs> he comes round with this guy who looks a little bit like uh, David Warner, but isn't. And uh, they've both got these ridiculously long baseball caps, but we'll talk about them in a minute because we haven't got there yet. Um, but yeah, they're there to, to fix his ducts 
or something. So yeah, Jonathan Price. This I'm going to say now that I've watched it twice recently is his the performance of his life. He's really putting a lot into it, and um, it's it's a performance that he remembers very fondly. He's proud of. And uh, you know, I've I've always enjoyed him as um, uh, um, Governor um, Swan in Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh yeah, of course. I see. You I forgot. was trying to I was trying to think of what else I'd seen. Not him in. Elliot Carver in Tomorrow Never Dies. No news like bad oh. news. <laughs> Come on, there's got to be more Johnny Price. Anyway, um, he reminded me, especially later on when he's in his pajamas and being very tentative and not knowing what he's doing, of Arthur Dent. Now, Hitchhikers came out when. Early 80s. We've got I to check the say. dates on this. We do. Because it was a radio show first. Yes. Right, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 1978 to 1980, Ooh. was when the original radio series came oh, okay. out. That means that Hitchhiker's inspired this rather than the other way around. Mm. There is a lot of Hitchhikers in this and this in Hitchhikers. And I say that in a circular fashion because the Hammer and Tongs film that came out um, more recently has, a like the Vogons in particular, all of that ridiculous bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And the point is that the, like, the Vogons use bureaucracy and commit an atrocity. They destroy the entire Earth and don't say sorry. Mm-hmm. Because... Well, and as such, Jonathan Price's character is very similar to Arthur Dent. He's missing a loyal companion like Ford Prefect to mm-hmm. really keep him moving forward. So basically, imagine Arthur Dent without that anima mm. to just really keep pushing Although him. he does have a competent female who attempts to sort his shit out for kind him. Kind of, like after an hour and a half, a bit for some scenes later and then that all goes to yeah, pot. But I'll get to that. We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, anyway, there, I was get I put down here a Ministry of Magic vibe mm-hmm. and Sharon also noticed that too and then we found out later that David Yates most definitely was inspired by Brazil when it came to putting together the Ministry of Magic. Specifically, well, he, uh, Yates was the first one who introduced the Ministry in five. Uh, it was, uh, it's seven where there's a lot of Ministry yeah, it's, of Magic. It's the the Deathly Hallows Part One. Um, that was specifically modelled on this, um, particularly the statue at the front, which is another thing, um, the an- uh, angelic figure that. Sam takes in his dreams looks a little bit like the statue at yep. the front of the Ministry of I Reception. noticed exactly that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <clears throat> um, so we also get introduced to Jack Lint, uh, played by Michael Palin. Now, originally, Robert De Niro really, really wanted the role of Jack Lint. Now, that doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense as the character. There's not really much to the character. He's just a businessman. He's genial, kind of. Like, he's got a metallic friendliness to him, mm. if that makes sense. He's, he's he's very... He's emblematic of the very superficial relationships that uh, a lot of people yeah, have. Yeah, working relationships. Movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, he appears when they, he meets Sam to have known him for a long time, but it's a long time since they've caught up. And there's this brilliant little oh, exchange. Oh, that gag That's is so good. so funny. Are we allowed to tell them the gag? Yeah, well, no, no, we've got, we've got to say it. No, it's it's because it's worth worthy of pointing out that this is a brilliantly formed gag. Uh, it's, it's it's just a couple of words. It's it's kind of absurdism. You'd almost get it in the two Ronnies or something. Mm. Um, it's um, uh, how are they uh, twins? Uh, triplets? 
triplets, how time flies. I love that. I love that. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, notably here, uh, to, to tip you off, Jack Lint is dressed as a Gestapo officer. Mm. He's got a fucking black trench coat on yep. and a, a, a black fedora. And he sort of, you know, like practically goes like a, a weird little bow when he, when he meets him. And it's like, just it's, a, it's foreshadowing the fact that he is a torturer for a living and is going to eventually turn on his friend. Mm. And he starts, I mean, he does start leaning on Sam straight away, but it's not in a manner that you would necessarily interpret as threatening unless you've been there because it seems so friendly and well-meaning and with his best interests at heart. So um, Jack works in information retrieval, which is the torture department. Mm. We don't know that yet, though. And Sam works in records, Mm -hmm. which is basically just the people who manage the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Sam is happy with this. He doesn't want to move on. He doesn't particularly want to work any higher up in the organization. He doesn't want any more responsibility than he already has, um, even though he is more than capable of higher activity, which is demonstrated later. But Jack basically keeps saying to him, oh, you know, you don't look well. Your life's obviously not going brilliantly. Just look at your suit. And it's, it's kind of a, a more peer-level version of the strong-arming that he gets from his mother later on, where yeah. she is outright telling him, you're a disappointment, you you haven't you know, risen to the, the potential that you could have had. She almost says to him, I wish you weren't my son, or yeah. words to that effect, which is absolutely flipping horrendous. Um, but again, I'll get to the mother stuff. We'll come to those in a minute. Um, But one thing I did want to mention, actually, it starts uh, back in Sam's apartment, but there's this very, very much this feeling that everything looks inventive, (coughs) creative, and like you say, technologically advanced, but nothing works properly. The, the, the alarm, you know, the, he says the power's up the spell, and it's it's in that tone that says this happens all, all the, the time. time. And then the bath plug doesn't work properly, and then the tea doesn't pour in the teacup; it pours on the toast, and then he has to eat soggy toast. And it's like, it, it, does anything in this world actually do How what is it's it meant to utilitarian do? Utilitarian and yet useless. It's aesthetically bland and ugly as hell, but also functionless. Mm, yeah. It's like a pair of ugly boots that also are uncomfortable. Mm. <laughs> anyway, um, but that's why it's a comedy. Yeah, it's it's why it's a satire. It's it, but it's, it's I don't know. Again, you're only going to get a certain amount of rib tickling out of that in in uh, this day and age. It's just it's kind of sadder to watch because it's such a a dark reflection of what we have to put up with, especially in this country, where like in America, I assume if stuff doesn't work, it's like this don't work. <laughs> A smaller town America, probably not. But well, in New York, yeah. they don't stand for that I shit. Was, Same as in London, say, they probably no, I, don't stand I, for that I shit. I do get the impression, and again, if you live in America, please correct me if I am wildly The coastal elites do not allow for that. But I do kind of get the impression that in America, either it works or you don't have it at all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah let us know, Americans. Um, in this country, you have it, but you have a second-rate version of it that breaks down all the time. Mm. And you can't get another one because you can't afford it. Mm. Um... Anyway, there's also an appearance here from uh, Gordon Kay, who played René Artois and only just died a few weeks ago um, as uh, one of the uh, um, like sort of processing officers. Uh, also noticed Nigel Planer, who was Neil in The Young Ones, was in there at one point. And Jim Broadbent, who plays a plastic surgeon, too. 
Mrs. Ida Lowry. Now, if you if you Google Brazil, you're probably going to see this image because it's so striking. Uh, it's uh, Gilliam sending up plastic surgery. Catherine Helmond uh, having her face like stretched out so that he can make her look younger. It's not something I would ever do. I can I can understand why some people feel they might need to, especially if they're very prominently in the public eye. Um, and like you said, the 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 pressure. I think there was there was a point some years ago where it was far more prevalent, um, and kind of pushed the way makeup and and um, uh, face creams with collagen in them and things like that are pushed now. Mm. Um, so yeah, massive pressures for people to to cave in Specifically and, and women. have it done. Yeah, um, which, there's one particular side of it is Botox. And I don't get how women can look at every woman who has been famous and had Botox in the past and go, yeah, that's the kind of dead-faced expression I definitely want. Just, just poison part of my face. Gives you an, imp- an idea, though, of how terrified society has made these women of being wrinkled. Oh, I sympathise. They have a dead-looking face than look wrinkled. I sympathise, but, like... If you're trying to stave off the Reaper by killing part of yourself, the part that people relate to, is that not kind of shooting yourself in the foot or the face? Like, if people are looking at you and going, I can only relate to your eyes now because nothing here is moving. Mm. It's like you're wearing a mask of your own face. Kind of makes you wonder how well those people relate to other people already. Yeah. Let's not be judgmental, but um, obviously this film is being judgmental and thus it's kind of important for us to at least venture into that. Uh, but again, uh, mid-80s, it was far more prevalent. An obvious plastic surgery was pro- far more prevalent as yeah. well. Um, and I think that, again, is something that Gilliam's kind of looked at and gone, yeah, why? Hmm. I, with the, in this day of Google images and being everywhere... Rather than being like, I don't want to be caught with my face looking anything other that's not Botoxed, I must have a standard face everywhere. I would be like, right, I must always be drinking some fruit juice and cheering and going, yeah, all the time. Yeah. That way, whenever someone catches me, snaps me, he's just going, he just loves mango juice. It's great. <laughs> but no one ever wants to take photos of me, so it doesn't matter. Um, but the Mrs. Ida Lowry's friend has got a bandaged ear. And if you listen to the commentary, Terry Gilliam says why. It's because his father had a growth on his ear at one point and he went to see the Acid Man. That's, that's the kind of name that would make me go, I would like to see your credentials, sir. <laughs> but clearly Mr. Gilliam did not ask the Acid Man for his credentials. And the acid man said, right, we're just going to put acid on your ear and then you've got to go to the park for an hour and let it do its business on that growth on your ear. It'll sting some. And then he did that and he was in the park going, this hurts, this really, mm, this hurts so much. And then they went um, back to the acid man and the acid man took the bandage off and went, oh, it's eaten away the whole top part of your ear. This almost never happens. So anyway, um, th- this woman with her sort of like clearly burnt bandaged ear is like, oh yeah, it's it can be quite painful, but it's a, you know, it's a it's a healthy process or something on those lines. That Mr. Gilliam had to have reconstructive surgery on that ear, which I'm assuming was pretty expensive and painful as well. Mm. I, I I mean I'm guessing 
that in its most professional context, it's not wildly different from a doctor putting liquid nitrogen on a, a wart to burn it off. Yeah. Um, you would think that if he was an acid man, he'd know about the pitfalls of using acid. familiar with it. Yeah. Was but his again, office in an alley? Again, when <laughs> you're looking at the possibility of going to a professional, trained, hospital-based doctor... And that costing you so many thousands and thousands yeah. of dollars that you could potentially lose your home. God. Or somebody who... Uh, Gilliam never mentioned that this, might... whether this was in England or America. It may have been America. Yeah, again, he, he grew up in America, so... Mm. But then again, healthcare was different 50 years ago, which yes, is what this would have been. it by was, now. yeah. yeah. The, the NHS has not always existed. Mm. Um, and, and doesn't exist it, in America. were a lot more shit and... It looks like some people want to go that way again. Let's go back that way again. I can afford Booper. It's no yeah. problem to me. Mm. Okay. Nah. <clears throat> anyway. Um, so I've looked. Booper's fucking expensive. Yep. <clears throat> so the uh, the, uh, the arm thing that I went through, folks, that would have cost us how much? Oh, if we'd, no, if we'd paid for it out of pocket, it would have been like, I think, six and a half thousand if it had to go all the way to surgery. Oh. Booper was like I looked for the for three of us. It would be about 150 quid a month. But the point is that they don't cover you for pre-existing conditions, right. which basically means that we'd also have to pay on top of that for my inhalers, mm-hmm. Lyra's inhalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't cover contraception, so I'd have to pay for that. Wow. Uh, they don't cover um, anything to do with your eyes or your teeth. So I would have to. Well, I mean, I pay for my glasses anyway. But if Lyra ends up being short-sighted as well, we'd have to pay for that. The NHS will cover it until she's sixteen, if if anything happens. Um, in the next few years. Somebody emailed me the other day and said, you know, you don't seem to get... You say you're political in your podcast, but all you say that's political is just bashing Trump voters. You never talk about anything else that's political. Yes, we do. All the time. Everything's political. Anyway, that guy was a fucking troll. So, so the restaurant half blows up because of terrorists. (laughs) And this kind of reminded me of the Fifth Element. Do you know that bit when they're um, uh, uh, in, in the airport and there's like you know just like explosions going off and the, the, there's garbage everywhere and mess and I, I think uh, Luke Besson was somewhat inspired by Brazil. I feel at mm. least a little bit. Yeah, quite likely. I, I can see the parallels between um, Luke Besson's sensibilities mm. when it comes to things like set design, particularly, and um, Terry Gilliam's. I know the Wachowskis were mm. because there's a bit in Jupiter Ascending where uh, um, Jupiter goes through a bunch of uh, bureaucracy, and Terry Gilliam's there and, as like a, a character with makeup on and stuff. I've got to watch that one again. It's um, I'm hoping that uh, the uh, Valerian City of the Future Tomorrow or something like that, mm. uh, City of a Thousand, who gives a fucks, uh, is uh, going to be like a really good version of Jupiter Ascending, which has its charms. Mm. I, I think it seems pretty It's ridiculous obvious. and watchable and fun. Mm. Almost like if they'd made that a deliberate and obvious satire of young adult fiction, it would probably have been better. Mm. But then it ends up being like really straight. Yeah. Like the whole way through. Well, I, I was going to say, I think it's pretty obvious that the Wachowskis of um, They obviously find directors like Gilliam and Besson to be quite inspiring. Mm. Um, I think, uh, right, just cut this out if 
this is blindingly wrong, but did Luc Besson do The Professional? Yeah. So Bound reminds me of that a little bit. Wachowski. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think some of the angles that they took on Cloud Atlas are quite similar to The Fifth Element. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think there's a, a definite parallel between Gilliam and Besson. And ultimately, what... I like about the Wachowski sisters' work is that it's it, there's a wistfulness about it. There, mm. but there's a very naive almost tone to a lot of their work, which makes it both weirdly difficult to watch for me and also strongly appealing. Because mm. it's like, it's such a sweet way of viewing the world. <laughs> Tell you what, Jupiter Ascending, better than Ghost in the Shell. <laughs> Bloody hell, Ghost in the Shell. Anyway, you tell me about that. No, we might like we, we might do that. Um, uh, but yeah, the other thing about the Fifth Element is there's kind of a silly fascism to their police. Yes, which sort of fits in with this as well. And yeah. their waddling also reminds me of Vogons, the uh, the Mandashi ones at mm. the beginning. Yeah. So it seems like waddling and. Funny fascist police, mm. <laughs> kind of competent fascist police. Yes. The worst kind of fascist. Actually, that's the best kind of fascist. That's the best kind of fascists. (laughs) You can work your way around them, usually. Yes. You can beat them with a logic puzzle. Um, uh, Then De Niro turns up, um, Mr. Tuttle. And uh, this is the real uh, terrorist who's, um, you know, this, like, trying to rewire uh, Sam's whole house. Mm. Well, basically... This is a really confused section because it's not apparent what's going on. The viewer is as bewildered as Sam himself. Well, it is is pretty clear what's going on. De Niro keeps pointing his silenced pistol in everyone's face and half the people don't even notice. Right. Something's gone wrong with Sam's Sam's engineering and uh, electricity. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to ring central services to tell them that he needs somebody to come out and fix it. And he basically gets this person who says they're not a recording but refuses to engage with him as a human being at all right um and says that there's been staff cuts and they don't have uh, availability for people to come out and fix at night so he's gonna have to call back during office hours robert de niro then shows up at his door um as he seems like a burglar when he comes in first of all he's got a flashlight and a balaclava and a gun um certainly works for the sas or something basically he is a terrorist he's being treated as a terrorist and he's the person that the uh, information retriever were trying to arrest at the beginning when they ended up arresting Mr. Buttle by accident. Um, But his terrorist acts basically consist of intercepting calls to central services for people who need assistance with their heating engineering and then going round to their house and illegally fixing their stuff. What a bastard. I know, isn't it just? I actually wrote down here that my my description of uh, Tuttle is he's a heating engineer on the edge who plays by his own rules and won't let those stuffed shirts at Central Services tell him what to do. (laughs) He's a maverick heating engineer who works pro bono. He totally is. Well, no, um, uh, Sam tries to pay him and he refuses. Totally gratis. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's almost like he, he, this is what he wants to do. You know, he's, he's a trained heating engineer and he desperately wants to help people but he can't trust the system yeah if he works within the system he won't be allowed to help people because for everything Mm. he wants to do he's got to fill out 10 forms and and, uh, Sam actually says to him why don't you just work for central services he says he can't stand the paperwork yeah 
Understandably. Basically, uh, this is a, a system that will not allow for any kind of human idiosyncrasy mm. or uh, basically hu- the kind of humanity that allows you to do something that's not been already processed. Yeah. But this, this is your answer to every person who's ever said, why doesn't Bruce Wayne just join the police? Because mm. he couldn't stick the paperwork. Doesn't like it. No. He just wants to be able to do stuff, which makes him a little bit... Uh, of uh, an island unto himself politically. Mm. Sam goes to meet Mrs. Buttle to give her a check, um, and he gets into his little Messerschmitt car, which I assume is made by the same people that made the planes for the I Germans. So it basically looks like the cab of a Messerschmitt plane. Yeah, it's this little three-wheeled oh, car. Cockpit, sorry. Uh, w- by the way, when he was driving along, he drives past a truck. Was Jill driving that truck? I have no idea. Almost certainly. Because she's a truck driver, isn't she? She is, yes. Yeah, there you go then. Um, so anyway, he's sort of t- um, tumbling along with this. And this again, this is like a beginning bit. Like that re- that would really be like as soon as he wakes up, after he goes into the office, that's his first task. Like a lot of what we've seen already, it's all sort of like selling the world, but you could definitely condense it down. Mm. Although the 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 reason that this occurs kind of in the middle-ish is that it, this is not a normal task. Yeah. He's not meant to do this. Mm-hmm. His job involves remaining in an office, very detached, very separated from the people that, that are impacted by his pen strokes. Mm-hmm. And he... Um, he volunteers to take the check around to her house. It's basically a, a refund check because her husband, who was arrested and tortured to death mm. in place of um, Tuttle, is getting billed for uh, his torturing. Um, the costs of things like the electricity that they use to shock him and the um, mm. the pay for the p- uh, people who are torturing him, um, he's getting charged for it. And basically what's happened is he's been overcharged for something, so they're sending him a refund. Yeah. But they can't give the cheque to Mr. Buttle because Mr. He's Buttle dead. is dead. Right. Mrs. Buttle doesn't have a bank account, so they can't pay it directly into her bank account. And Sam's boss, Kurtzman, Kurtzman. is terrified that somebody basically they've got to get rid of this check they've got to find some official and formal and legitimate way to get rid of this check so he desperately manipulates the situation so that Sam will do it for him exactly. and is incredibly grateful that it's you know being taken out from under him and he's no longer responsible for this thing mm, yeah this is um, Ian Holm again treasure um, who kind of reminds me of uh, the way he um, played um, Mr. Neville in uh uh, a lifeless ordinary. Mm. That uh, in the the least rated Danny Boyle film, which is one of my top favourites of his. Love mm. that film. Yeah. It's very Princess Thieves, by the way. <laughs> um, one of the this is the that... worst kidnapping I've ever had. Well, I'm trying to do the best here under really difficult circumstances. <laughs> Um, one of the things I really like about this scene, actually, is um, it, it kind of outlines how much of a society in denial this is. Um, and again, it comes back to this idea of, of being detached from the human experience, of not ever feeling anything. All of this grey, all of this paperwork, all of this formality. The purpose is to separate people from their, their visceral experiences as much as is humanly possible. Yeah. Because those visceral experiences are uncomfortable. They can't be catalogued. They can't be predicted. They can't be processed. They can't be processed and they can't be... 
um, easily manipulated. You, you can manipulate people's emotions, but it's not necessarily consistent. Not everybody will react in the same way. And so you can't teach people do A and you will get result B because emotions get in the way and they, they mm. mess things up. So um, when Kurtzman is basically... Uh, reading out all of the all of the departments within the ministry have got Buttle filed under something different. They've got him, you know, this this department's got him down as excised. This department's got him down as completed. This department's got him down as inoperative. And eventually, Sam turns around and says something along the lines of, "So he's dead then." But he can't, like Kurtzman, can't say that. Hmm. He can't say he's dead. It's all about the denial, all about the refusal to accept the human condition. And that goes through so many levels of this. Sam gets it from the the restaurant where everything that's meant to be food is not food. It is multicolored mush. It's just colored paste. Yeah, exactly. And it doesn't even have names. You have to order everything by a number. And if you try to ask for a steak, you get told, no, you've got to do the number. Yeah. Again, it's it's a dehumanizing. Um, It's a, a trying to separate organic experience, which eating very much is, mm. from the the everyday experience of life. And and part of it is this feeling of, you know, when horrible things happen, we can just ignore them and push on because we're not identified with the emotional responses that come from those things. And, and hence the explosion in the restaurant and everybody just puts up screens and carries on as they were before. Yeah. Speaking of, and actually on those lines, when uh, um, he gets to Buttle's apartment, which has got a great big hole in the ceiling uh, because it was supposed to be filled in, but the guys came in with a hole to, to fill it in, but they've changed the system so it's metric, so it doesn't quite fit the hole, so they drop a big disc through it mm-hmm. and then leave it because it's nobody's business because basically like, if if no one's accounted for this mistake before it's happened, they're just going to leave their mess. Yeah. Also, though, um, that's not Imperial Tometric because that the disc only just doesn't fit. If yeah. it was Imperial Tometric, it would be way too small. No, they're, they're passing the buckets again. It's just a slight, you know, yeah. it's a fraction off. Yeah. But even if it was, like, it's, it's not even shaped the right way. You can't put a, uh, uh, a completely straight disc down a straight hole. It would still fall down. Uh, it would have to be plug-shaped. Ha- yeah, there'd have to be some kind of overlap. But, I mean, ultimately, you know, even Sam gets involved with this whole denial thing. Um, when his mum's talking to him about you don't have any ambition, or she, I think she says to him, don't you have any any dreams or, or desires? And he says, no, he doesn't have hopes, desires, he doesn't even have dreams. We know that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, he is trying to fit in with this environment of cut yourself off from everything you feel. And Conceal, don't feel. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, give this guy ice powers and just take him away and let him build a castle. I'm sure he'd be much happier after He'd that. sing. He would. He does, he does. sing. <laughs> <laughs> or he tries to, but what happens? The singing telegram turns around and says, oh, no, you don't have to sing. No, let him sing. Do you know what you have to no, do? No, he sings at the end is what I mean. Oh, right, at the very end. Well, yeah, he's finally been released from all of that whole detach yourself from everything yeah. by that point. But you know what you have to do to be able to sing? Just sing. Breathe. Breathe. You yeah. can't sing if you can't breathe. Yeah. So yeah, at Mr. Buttle's uh, apartment, he goes in and sees Mrs. Buttle, who's just staring, staring. Her, her children aren't there anymore. I don't know where they. Um, His daughter's outside waiting for her father. Oh. Sam sees her in the um, the alleyway when he comes down earlier yeah. on. 
and she doesn't know he's dead. No. Right. So uh, Mrs. Buttle just catatonic, and he starts to make small talk with her, and she says, what, what have you done with my husband? He's dead, isn't he? And what have you done with his body? And it's this really awkward moment where he's trying to, uh, you know, sort of like give her this check, and she goes into anguish. And it's anguish that's not appropriate for the rest of this movie, basically. It's so sharp and so piercing and so true and so real. It feels like... It's actually the the point he was trying to make is that it's supposed to make you uncomfortable with how real it is relative to all this fake system shit that he's been uh, shoveling at you so far. But it's the kind of uh, outburst that's going to make everyone in their seats just start really shifting around uncomfortably because you can't come back from that. And then it immediately goes back to silly again straight afterwards. And it's so awkward. And it's not the only deeply awkward moment in the film. But, uh, yeah, no, it's um, a fantastic performance from Mrs. Buttle. But um, he's been also dreaming of uh, England's green fields. Now, I couldn't possibly have seen Brazil when I was a kid. I didn't see it until my late teens. But I used to have the dreaming of soaring over England's green fields and having these giant skyscrapers, um, you know, push their way up through the soil. Uh, which kind of reminds me of the beginning of Monty Python's Meaning of Life, which I believe Gilliam directed as well, where one skyscraper invades another like a pirate ship. And uh, it, the, these businesses have become these, um, you know, shark-like entities of the uh, New York waters. Apparently, actually, it was Terry Jones who uh, directed Meaning of Life. He also co-directed uh, Holy Grail and... Again, fully directed Life of Brian. I, you know what? If you held a gun to my head and said, asked who directed those three Python movies, I'd have said Gilliam every time. Terry Jones, hats off to you, sir. Holy Grail, Life of Brian. Two of the funniest movies of all goddamn time. If you haven't seen them, see them. There's an aggressiveness about buildings like that that Gilliam has noted. And, um, yeah. They are somewhat phallic. A bit, Yeah. <clears throat> Um, but uh, yeah, there's an extended dream sequence here, which in the American cut of the film is actually divided into three. But in the British version of the film, it's all one where he fights the samurai. And the samurai, first thing that it happens is, is this enormous hulking giant samurai that turns up and it cuts off Icarus's wings and he has to face it just with his little sword. And he's hideously outmatched. It's got this great big pole axe thing. Kind of reminds me of in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. There's this giant samurai type thing stalking Bruce Lee. This demon that's been looking for him since he was a child. Um, to one of the particular fantastical moments of that otherwise relatively down-to-earth film. Um, but it's, it's an aggressive patriarchal symbol of a particularly um, authoritative patri- patriarchal culture. Yeah. And um, also, being in the 80s, I figured Japan equals big business. So the idea that uh, Japan somehow in the 80s managed to keep a little bit of the old world whilst, you know, also forging ahead into the new world. So they sort of retained that sense of tradition without going in quite the same direction as uh, America, which may have been why they um, flourished quite so much at the time. But yeah, he fights this great big black samurai, and then eventually he, uh, uh, you know, he gets the better of it, stabs it with its own spear. You want to symbolise that one? Mm-hmm. Um, well, just if you're being attacked by a big thing with a weapon, mm. you, you'd turn its own weapon back on it. Okay. Um, 
<clears throat> basically what you have is not going to be enough to take on the shadow element. Yeah. And it is the shadow because then after he uh, kills it, it uh, its helmet explodes off and it's his own face under the Darth Vader helmet. And it's like either Gilliam totally knew and he's like, right, totally doing the Empire Strikes Back here. Or Gilliam didn't know. And it's like, how could you not know? So He didn't mention it in the commentary. He didn't. No. Just, all he had to do is just say, yeah, there's, our, there's our little Empire moment. But he didn't. That's fine. I, I'm going to go ahead and guess that at least the people working on effects knew that that was Empire. But apparently it was really dangerous effects. That samurai on fire was in real danger of cooking. So, yeah. Just the same as the um, heating engineers who he filled their suits up with sewage were in danger of drowning. They were? Yep. He said they had to, basically, as soon as that shot ended, they had to dive in there and cut those suits open so that they didn't drown in what they were filling them up with. Was it just chocolate milk? I don't know what it was. And obviously, it wasn't actual human waste. Um, but It couldn't um, have been. Well, no. Because? Health and safety? Yeah. Good. Good. Didn't see any dookie in there either. No. No. But the point being... <laughs> There are so many moments in this film where it's like, okay, you can't do that to people. <laughs> Particularly, we'll talk about this in a bit, but the scene where Gilliam's own daughter appears in the film. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I am so disapproving right now yep. of how he handled that scene. Yep, I put Lyra in my productions, but only the stuff that she really, really wants to do. And I never make her say this. No. Right, um, so uh, because he's spotted a short-haired girl who reminds him very much of his dream girl when he went to see Mrs. Buttle, uh, Jill, a truck driver, um, living in that neighbourhood. Mrs. Buttle's upstairs neighbour. Mrs. Buttle's upstairs neighbour. He decides he wants to be in information retrieval now. He wants to take the promotion that his mother was offering him. Is that it? Yep, Uh, so he can find out who she is and where she is. So he can creep on her. Yeah. I mean, like, how is that not just, like... Again, you'd have real difficulty doing that in a film these days and not having him be a creep. The amount of shit that passengers got when lovely Chris Pratt pressed a button. (laughs) He knew what the button did, though. Yeah. He's a certified creeper. But... uh, Um, Price here, Sam, like he wants to be like a legalized creeper, so he 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 needs to find out about this girl, and um, he goes into um, well, he goes to a party first. He gets a weird like singing invitation to the party, and yeah, singing telegram comes and invites him to his mother's party an hour late, I might add, mm. and he says something about isn't it a bit late for the party? And she says, oh yeah, there's a backlog. Everybody always complains. You know what? Just. Ignore the next few. Start on time for a batch at some determined point in the future. Or, Terry Gilliam, you've already made the point that overthinking and overcomplicating technology actually makes it useless for its sole intended task. You don't need the singing telegram. Like, just don't have that scene. It Mm. it doesn't need to be in there. As do about ten other scenes, which basically just achieve much the same thing Mm. and could shorten the film. And... Let me tell you, with this kind of film, you really want it svelte. You don't want it epic. By all means, have an extended edition with all that stuff put back in, Mm -hmm. but that for a theatrical edition to get people talking about this movie, oh, that's really good. I really want to see the extended cut as well. You've got to have something that's just, like, has pace. Mm. But we'll talk about that later because it's not 
Well, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Of course, I say that with the benefit of hindsight. This was like 1985, so they didn't do director's cuts or extended edition. It took Aliens and Blade Runner, like bringing the directors back and going back to the cutting room and, and actually releasing significantly better director's cuts to even kickstart that concept. And that was a couple of years out. I will, however, stand by my point. There were ways you could have trimmed this down without losing the core tenets. The irony is, it's a simple film that gets needlessly complicated, which, structurally speaking, makes it very, very difficult for people to enjoy en masse. But if you simplify it too much, you lose that ridiculous overcomplication. So, uh, also, if you, Mr. Gilliam director of whatever unnamed film do an edit that is spelt the producers are much less likely to sweep in and try and do an edit for you cutting out the wrong things yeah. and making the film both shorter and more incomprehensible yeah but he did his artist thing which is to fight at every step of the way and to defend his work mm. which is his prerogative and he's the, uh, he gives this really lovely uh, speech on the um uh, commentary about that just like he he just was this um fragile artist just trying to defend this work and just like holding the back with a whip and a chair um and he ends up quite impassioned sort of you know uh, um not shouting but definitely kind of like you know chest thumping about um how uh movie studios basically just want to make money which is crushing when you're an artist who doesn't realize that going in mm. That basically you uh, that he wasn't jaded really to begin with, which is odd considering this film. You might underestimate, for example, how willing these studios who just want to make money are to treat people all to a man like absolute idiots in order to shepherd them along towards the conclusion and all think the same thing. They are effectively, in that regard, at odds with the artist. But anyway... Um, uh, he goes to this party, talks to his mum, and uh, gets the promotion, then gets uh, sent down to an office block where there's, like, a West Wing-style, like, corridor rush where some businessman-type Johnny Business is answering lots of business-related questions. And then he gets shunted into a cubicle. And this is the parody of the idea of having all complete loss of space and uh, uh, basically becoming a battery uh, in this system. And um, it's got this movable... Matrix. Matrix. It's got this movable wall, which is not supposed to be movable, from his neighbour who keeps shoving it sideways. It's the desk. The wall itself is oh, fixed. Is it? the There's a slot in the wall. Gotcha. And then a big metal slab that mm. goes through the slot that basically forms the desk on both sides of the wall. But half the desk is not enough room to put the two folders and the in and out trays. Yeah, so they're constantly pulling this table backwards and forwards to steal more space gotcha. to put their stuff on and knocking their neighbours' stuff all over the floor. Yeah, it's... It's hilarious. It's hilarious, but at the same time, it, it reminds me of that bit in Black Books with Fran and that uh, uh, the war she had with her neighbour because their um, landlord, Johnny Vegas, um, wanted to divide one room into two rooms so that he could make double the money. And it's, uh, yeah, just the idea of, like, slowly eroding your space 
is, uh, is it, I mean, it's in office space as well when um, Stephen Root's constantly being shunted to one side, put in a place which is less desirable and eventually moved down to the basement and you find out that he's not been paid for about two years. Um, it's dehumanising again and it's a very graphic way of showing that mm. without it actually becoming barbaric. It's an acceptable dehumanisation in a uh, civilised society to just keep pulling back and back and back on, you know, to the point where if you, if you argue this table isn't big enough, they can go, well, if you really want a bigger table, you are absolutely welcome to file a complaint letter, which will have to be filled out in triplicate, and it will go through this office and this office and this office. And it's a way of just blowing you off. It's a way of ensuring that like, you can't make a fuss. You have to go through the proper channels. And it takes so long and eventually doesn't come back to you that they hope you will just stop mm. and maybe quit. Because anyone who is... Uh, angry enough to make a genuine complaint and keep it and keep it as a grievance is too much trouble. <clears throat> so he's he becomes DZ-015 and um, there's a poster on the wall of his uh, neighbour that says, don't suspect a friend, report him. Which, uh, again, I think was... Uh, it's possible that the people who were making the set dressing for this film had read 1984 cover to cover, even if Gillian hadn't. Oh, hells yeah. <laughs> there's um, slogans all over the place that are to do with um, the whole everybody should be watching each other. There's eyes that turn up on things in, in symbol form. There's a poster somewhere that says suspicion breeds confidence. Oof. Um there's something about um, power first, pleasure tomorrow, which I think is the sign on the power station. Mm. Or, pa yeah, power today, pleasure tomorrow. Um, but the, it's just all this idea of, of everything is about the, the collective, but it's not the collective no. because it doesn't do anything for the people that are part of the There's collective. There's no sense of real cooperation and nothing fucking works. No. It's uh, it's the opposite of globalization. It's the opposite of cooperation. It's the opposite of unity. Mm. It's isolating everyone. Yeah. Turn them all into individual little batteries, but separate from each other by these shitty little corporate cubicle walls. Mm. Um, there's a portal influence in here as well. There's a, there, a lot of the bureaucracy of portal seems like it stems from here. There's a, a sort of a Wheatley-looking thing, um, which is sort of hanging from one of the walls and sort of the uh, the white wall panels as well. Um, and then he goes to visit Jack, uh, who we mentioned before, Jack Lint. And it's Michael Palin, and he's um, starts off just like shaking in a corner, going, like when he's not in conversation, he doesn't know that uh, uh, Sam's there. And it's like the the, the daily ordeal of torturing men to death and probably women as well uh, is clearly getting to him on a deeply psychological level and he is about to break uh, but he can't ever let that show he can't ever talk about it he can't he has to then turn around and, and smile and make brittle metallic small talk uh, in front of his daughter um, about a man who's died under his inquisition and uh, it's terry gilliam's daughter Michael Palin offers Sam a suit of his so that he can um, get dressed up for a... What is it? Um, I'm trying to think what it's to do with. It, uh, it, it might be some kind of interview or something. It, it, basically, he's obviously lacking confidence for something that he has to go and do. And Jack's mm. attitude is basically, well, it's not surprising that you, you feel so lacking. Look at your suit. Yeah. 
Then he leaves, and they, apparently they had to really work hard to make this happen. Gilliam had to just get everyone off the set, so it was just Gilliam and his wife and a camera and their daughter, and the daughter eventually says to uh, what, you know, is... Uh, cut away from and it, you know is she, apparently she's talking to Sam um, Sam is awkwardly like looking at the suit and he like he doesn't want to undress in front of a child that especially now that they're alone and the child says put it on big boy I won't look at your willy but she's like four so she goes put it on big boy I won't look at your willy and I'm sure Gillian thought well that's a thigh slapper isn't it how awkward but every single audience member in their right mind would have gone, what the fuck, Gilliam? Apparently, she really didn't want to say the line. Mm-hmm. It took two days to get it out of her. Yep. She did not enjoy the first day of filming so much, she took a pair of scissors and cut a chunk out of her hair so that they wouldn't be able to film her the next day. But they found... Whoa, that is an enterprising kid. Yeah. That is a smart kid. Oh, it won't match, Daddy. Continuity. Something like that. Um, Jesus. But um, they found a way to make it work anyway. And I'm sorry. How desperately do you need that line? If your child is that desperate not to be involved in your movie, find another kid. Or, you know what? Just don't put it in there. In some way. It's insanely awkward. You don't need it. You're filming a three or four year old child. That should have been a closed set anyway. Hmm. But even, like, there is no reason. Specifically for, like... Put it on Big Boy. What's Big Boy? Ugh. Big Boy, and then she's talking about his dick. Just wrong on so many levels. And also... Such disapproval, All he's doing is swapping a suit over. I can guarantee you, Sam Lowry is wearing underneath that suit almost knee-length white boxer shorts, a vest of some description, sock suspenders, and black nylon socks pulled up to his knees. She isn't going to see anything. That's It's entirely... I was going to say, the only way you could possibly do it is to have her go, and turn her back. Mm. But that's so human, it doesn't deserve, like... Maybe it just suggests that... Jack's daughter is human and hasn't been turned into this creep yet. But the way she says it sounds so robotic that it completely undermines that point. Bingo. No, no, as I mean, like, what I'm just saying there would make her seem human. Oh, I don't know. It's it's so mismatched. It's so mismanaged. And it just doesn't work on any level. That was a scene that could have gone. Yeah. Producers. Totally. Just so you know. Well, it did in the, uh, the Love Conquers All Cup. Anyway, um, oh, did it? it oh, wasn't yeah, there. Oh, okay, wasn't there? That's Love conquers happened. forty-eight minutes of the film. <laughs> <laughs> and Terry Gilliam's daughter, it would appear. Yeah. Um, then there's a truck sequence. Basically, he gets uh, like he goes down to find that Jill has turned up for reasons. Was there a reason given why she's there? She's complaining to the man at the uh, uh, the concierge. At the, at the very beginning, she's complained. But the bit where she turns up at the building, um, she's they're trying to arrest her. Yeah. Like, did she come of her own volition or did they bring her there? They, I think they asked her to come for some reason and then while she was at the desk, they surrounded her by men with guns. Right. Is she a terrorist? Yes. What has she done? Obviously not mending people's... I'm not sure. That's the thing. It's so vague. This, like, her, she is such a vague and, and and thinly painted character. And she is one of the crux points of the movie. She doesn't really have her own agency. Not really. 
She doesn't make any major decisions. She barely speaks. That's that's part of what kind of feeds into my way of interpreting this whole film, actually. Yeah. And okay. this, this, okay, I'm going to outline it now because it kind of makes sense here. This feeds back into the the idea that Gillian works with dreams mm-hmm. and um, and dreamscapes a lot, and one of the ways that I have a tendency to interpret stories and films and people who listen to School of Movies regularly will know this because I go on and on about it and I'm sure I bore quite a lot of people with it. But if you analyse them as you would analyse a dream, which is to take every character as an aspect of the dreamer, Mm. then if you take everybody within the dream, within the film, as elements of Sam's own character... Basically, what Jill is, and this both explains and, I suppose, kind of excuses why she is not a fully rounded character, why she's she's not a real person. She's just a human archetype. She is, yeah, she is. She is the archetypal manifestation of his uh, anima, which is the repressed. Sorry, Freudians. Sharon is a Jungian. (laughs) There'll be no blaming mummy today. Um, The uh, the repressed. female or feminine elements of his character, which the culture has tried to cut away from him. And this kind of fits in with this whole idea of trying to detach everybody from their emotions. Um, Basically, what that does is it creates suppressed caring characteristics and relating characteristics and, and all of those things that kind of get stereotyped as being feminine and um, men particularly get taught you can't be like that you can't have those characteristics otherwise you're not a man and but all of those characteristics if they're in you they have to go somewhere and um, the the idea that when Jill appears initially she's this sort of mystical muse-like creature that he can't quite grasp she's there in his mind but he can't get a hold of her and then when she starts to get a little bit more solid he's dreaming about her being in a cage she's trapped in a cage <laughs> she can't interact with anything he I, I think she, her cage is tied up and he hacks with a bunch of scraps but then it just floats away so she's still ephemeral he can't get hold of her and then when she does turn up in real life um, she is everything that that um he's kind of he's set against and everything that he's been trained to uh, to stamp out is is what she represents um the whole thing about her being a truck driver she's into the idea of being able to go where she wants when she wants she's still working for the system she does deliveries and, and there's a scene where she gets given a parcel and sam basically says let's just throw it away and she's like no i've got a job to do so in in that sense there are parts of her that are just as indoctrinated into the system as he is mm. um but the the bit that kind of brings it all together is um it's very much towards the end of the film there's a scene where Sam goes into uh, what turns out to be the funeral of his mother's friend the one with the bad ear yeah um, she has her mysteriously died and, <laughs> possibly because of the acid <laughs> possibly because of the acid yeah exactly um, but his mother is there and she's had all this the idea is she's had all this plastic surgery and now she looks much much younger and she turns round and it's Jill Mm-hmm. And basically, the, the 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 point being that the she's like, don't call me mother. 
Because she's chatting with some young boys. Absolutely. But, th- I mean, she, she then turns back and she turns around again and it's, um, it's Catherine Hellman again. So it, it's obviously just meant to be for that fleeting moment he associates her with Jill. Mm-hmm. But the point being that the, um, the manifestation of those female characteristics that gets repressed, it's all tied in with um, the idea that when you have, again, particularly a boy, but most children, frankly, um, that the idea that the the state of being with your mother as a tiny baby and you're, you're safe and you're comforted and you're nourished and cared for, at some point, something will happen to make that stop. Mm. You will get removed from that and you won't get it back straight away. And... The theory is that if it happens when you're too young or if it happens in a particularly traumatic way um, or if it's reinforced too much, it can really cause some um, some difficulties in your psyche later in life. I refute that. That's fake psyche. It doesn't cause difficulties. Watch me sitting here saying nothing at all. It doesn't leave an enormous vacuum in your life you can never possibly fill. Not even with three billion voters? Fake psychology. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not three billion voters, sorry. Over, overestimating the population of America there. Three billion. Mm. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> where was I? Sorry. That you can be screwed up by uh, uh, being taken away too early. Yeah, that's it. So um, basically, Sam has spent this whole time... Maybe if your daddy calls you a bigly loser. (laughs) Sam has spent this whole film being totally cut off from uh, any kind of emotive reaction to anything. Um, And he's pursuing this feminine ideal because that part of himself he wants to engage with. He wants a relationship with um, with, with those feminine characteristics. But he can't have it because the society is is constantly trying to split him off from it and um, and prevent it from from being able to come to anything whole. And I think that seems particularly prominent. I I don't know if Gilliam intended that. I doubt very much that he did. He doesn't mention it in the commentary at all. On the surface, he doesn't like he talks about dreams, but he doesn't talk about interpreting dreams. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's dreamlike and whimsical, but it's almost like he wants to. Put like this is what dreams are like, uh, but not really not realizing really say that they mean anything. That they are laden with mm. symbolism. Absolutely. But if ever you want to look at um, the the narrative of a story um, and and see whether it fits this idea of of men being cut off from that element of of themselves by society, look for female characters who are kidnapped or uh, imprisoned in some way or um, or pushed away and right this clip the mail is kept me, from them the my dead family trope yep okay that it's ham-fistedly done 99% of the time yep but i am going to put money on the idea that that is the psychological shrieking of men who are desperate for this problem of society to be overcome the fact that they keep getting cut away from any any sense that they can be soft that they can care that they can be emotional that they can be hurt and that there is some way that they can express that without everybody around them going stop it you're being gay or stop it you're being pathetic or boys don't cry or any of that kind of shit so there you go if you want that to not be the constant narrative that needs to change in society, that, that people feel like that. My dead family tends to be uh, something that is funneled towards young men who have not yet got mm. the wife and the child 
to then really understand the depths of mourning that that would actually instill. And they, it is, it's just done as a shortcut to rage. Absolutely. But th- this is the thing. They know they've lost something. They just don't know what it is yet. Yeah, it's like, well, you know, what, why would a, a, a healthy man be that angry? Well, it's if he has something important. What could be that important? I don't know, a wife and child. What could happen to them? They could be murdered. And that's basically what sets that man in a terrible way free. Mm. Yeah. Free to be as single as he was before he met the wife and child that were then horribly murdered. Indeed. But this is it's it's a very blunt way of dividing these things down, but if you want to if you want to rectify the imbalance between um, emotional outlooks, basically you need to let your daughters be angry and you need to let your sons be sad. Yep. Shadow of Mordor, perfect example of this. It's not new by any stretch, but it's been spammed recently um there's there like i can't i am racking my brains for J.R.R. tolkien's um like history like the uh of the hobbit and lord of the rings there are like a dozen main characters in each book and a hundred support characters i am racking my brains to think of my dead family revenge fueled characters in that um thorin would have like there's that going on but it's like he didn't have his his wife wasn't killed in front of him his Mm. child wasn't killed in front of him it's It's more more about avenging the wrongs of his that were vested upon his father and also and it's it's loss of his culture as well and loss of this his entire but it's not my wife and child were killed no in Shadow of Mordor, where they were like, let's make an Assassin's Creed game for 20-something young angry men, they... Because Assassin's cr- Creed doesn't already exist. They create a ranger who's a brand new character called Talion, and then they kill his wife and child, and then he meets a wraith who was an, who an elf, and his wife and child were also killed by agents of Sauron, or maybe Sauron himself. Um, so it's, my dead family! My dead family. Let's get together and have our dead family. That's the game. One possessed, rage-filled spirit possesses the now dead, possibly still alive, I don't know, resurrected body of a ranger who's out to... They're both out to arrange their dead families. That's the best that the writers of Shadow of Mordor could come up with. Well, thank God there's a sequel to that and the Tolkien estate won't allow Peter Jackson any further dealings with the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. At this point, I would say Peter Jackson probably shouldn't direct any. But for the love of God, Weta are pretty good at this stuff. Let Jackson rest. But, um, yeah, just the My Dead Family thing. It's just... You won't find it much if at all, in New Century. it's uh, And if it's there, it will be in a much more complex fashion than just, they killed my family! Mm. You know, everyone's got... Uh, uh, yeah, Rocket Raccoon would say, we've all got dead, dead people, people. Yeah. about New Century. The human race is mourning the loss of a great number of people. We've all got dead people in New Century. It's not just about one angry... F- ex-father avenging just being being free to visit pain and suffering on everyone ugh that trope sorry slightly off the subject but since we're talking about ways to power your character forwards 
Right. Speaking of power, there's a truck sequence here where basically um, Sam, to prevent Jill getting arrested, rushes in uh, and pretends to be a high-ranking officer to then arrest her and take her out of the building himself, puts her back in her truck, tries to force her to drive. She won't drive. So uh, eventually he, you know, he manages to get her into gear. And then she kicks him out of the uh, tr- truck, does she? She does, yes. Yeah. And, Which uh, is, by the way, entirely the right response at this point. This strange person that you've never seen before in your life. Yeah, he says, I've dreamed about truck, you. I know it's weird. Tells weird, you they've but... dreamed about you. Tells you that they're in love with you. Yeah. And it's like, she, she starts, it's brilliant, really, her reaction. Because she starts off kind of, she's smiling and she's like... Oh, wow, that's really sweet. Why don't Thank you go you. and sit back there so I can look at you for yeah, a minute? Yeah, you're really cute. You're, re- you're totally my type. And he's like, well, really? She's like, no, not really. Opens the door. Eject a seat. out of the truck, <laughs> which is really quite smart. Mm. Um, before this happens, by the way, um, there's a, another great symbolic moment where... Um, Sam is actually himself being chased around the building because he didn't have his ID on him because he'd swapped suits with Jack. Mm-hmm. His ID is in his own suit, which is back in Jack's office. Is that Jack's ID? Uh, I don't think he's even got Jack's ID on him. He doesn't have any ID on him. So which level of bureaucracy is he? Well, exactly. That's the point. When he came in before, he kept saying to people, do you need to see my credentials? And everybody was like, no, 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 we all know who you are. Mm. Now, because he's changed the suit... All of a sudden, nobody knows who he is, and he doesn't have the right card to show them to say who he is. But part of the point of Sam is that this whole way through the film, he hasn't known who he is. He doesn't know his own identity, Mm. so he isn't able to show it to other people. At this stage, he doesn't have an identity, and so he has become persona non grata. Nobody wants to um, allow him his previous position because he can't prove who he is, Mm. and so he ends up running away from everybody because he doesn't want to deal with the whole, you have to fill in a form. Yeah. Uh, that's another one I've inadvertently come on, on uh, for uh, inspirations from Brazil, Futurama. The central bureaucracy in that's very Brazil. Yes. Um, it even has the uh, the one thing that I kind of love about um, the the the, uh, the art the deco in this is the only thing I really like is the vacuum tubes. That's uh, this is a system that basically you'd put a message into a little um, like a capsule container and then you put it in the wall and then you go thunk and then it would go hopefully to the right place and it would be it was a way of getting documents around a, a very lengthy office buildings without footwork being involved obviously useless now with email mm. and they uh, used to use it in department stores as well yeah. for getting change and yeah. stuff around I love that idea and um, obviously it's it's as antiquated now as the telegraph and and uh, there's no more use for it so it's always kind of nice to see that in the building um, in 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 films and things and uh, being employed um, so this truck thing goes on for quite a while it's in two parts basically uh, Sam trying to convince Jill that he loves her and um, then them trying to get away from pursuers now, I was watching closely there's a point where uh, he's hanging onto the truck and then she breaks and then he goes flying over the uh, uh, front, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly to go under the wheels of the truck. And then um, this is after he has scrawled on her dirty windshield, I love you. And then she's like, oh, is he dead? Is he not? And then he turns out to be still clinging to the front like Indiana Jones. And then she's really happy then. And from that point onwards, she loves him, kind of. Mm. Really? 
That's all it took? Again. And I I asked you, I can see why he loves her. Yeah. But why does she love him? Right. This is another thing that basically says to me, Jill is not a real person. She is a manifestation of a facet of Sam himself. Her, after she's thrown him out of the truck, which is kind of, you could interpret as he doesn't think he's worthy. So, of course, she would throw him out of the truck. Of course, his own feminine instinct would not want to have anything to do with him because that's how pathetic he is. But then, basically, her compassion kicks in. And it's a compassion that he has been desperate for from his mother, obviously, for years, and has never manifested itself. My God, is she Lucille Bluth. It's <laughs> Mallory Archer, although she's not quite as competent as Mallory Archer. So, yeah, um, yeah more Lucille, maybe. But um, if they remade I don't understand this, that reference and I won't I respond to it. <laughs> if they remade this, yes. totally. Um, but, um, but yes, the, the idea that this, um, this female muse person that he's um, attracted to and, and desperate for, um, her deep-seated need to make sure that he was okay would mm. overcome any antipathy that she had towards him and cause her to immediately start, you know, come over and mm. hug him and get him back in the truck. But the truck is kind of, again, in in dreams, vehicles are kind of representative of moving forward in your own life. It's not Sam's truck. He is being moved forward by something that's not his. He tries to take control of it a few times. He tries to get the wheel off Jill. She won't let him. Mm. He's being driven around his own own life by other people and it was at this point that I was watching a very unimpressed tough woman uh, grappling with a uh, man uh, and I thought uh, who was trying to take the wheel of her truck her rig and I thought right and I switched out the music and put on Mad Max Fury Road and my god folks if you're Brazil fans do that next time uh, because it worked so well Brothers in Arms (laughs) works very very well during these truck chases and uh, spiky cars as well. Um, it's, I mean, I mean, here's the thing. Fury Road is a perfect movie. Brazil is an imperfect movie. It's a, a movie that um, fails on, on many levels to really hammer its point home because it's got so much whimsy. It succeeds extremely well with people absolutely willing to take Terry Gilliam on his own terms. He is a director who comes to you, an artist who comes to you and says, this is me, this is my work, my work is me. If you accept it, you will get a lot out of it. And most people just go, nope, and that included me, um, until I really got what he was uh, talking about with this film. I still don't love the film, I get the film at least. This chase sequence, uh, he wanted there to be um, uh, carnage and casualties, and then for you to dwell a little bit too long on one guy on fire rolling around in extreme pain. And it was kind of, a, back in his day, It was uh, he, he was thinking, well, no one ever seems to dwell on the, the, the pain of the henchmen. But, uh, yeah, this is something that's... This is the thing. Um, going back to classics after you've absorbed everything that's come since that's um been that's been inspired by them it makes it harder to really mine those classics for their their, because you've seen them done better it pretty much requires you to uh put yourself back historically to a time before the things that it influenced but what we do on school of movies is look at how things are now how they feel now we absolutely take historical context into account But Brazil 
still does have a lot of enforced whimsy. It's probably a better, best way of putting it. <laughs> enforced whimsy. Yeah. How does that work exactly? I, I could not tell you. <laughs> um, but if you check out who the original casting was going to be for, mm-hmm. um, apparently uh, uh, Gillian wasn't massively happy with Kim Greist's performance, although he did at least uh, approve of her and um, uh, praise her when he was doing the commentary. But that's uh, Jill. Um, also considered, uh, Gilliam's first choice was Ellen Barkin. Also considered, Jamie Lee Curtis could have just nailed that part. I probably would really have liked Brazil more if Jill had been played by Jamie Lee Curtis. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, Rebecca De Mornay. Mm. Ray Dawn Chong. Remember her from uh, Quest for Fire? You don't remember Quest for Fire? I remember Quest for Fire. I don't remember Ray Dawn Chong. Which character did she play? She was the girl. In Quest for Fire. The very important female character. Oh, okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in um, Commando. She went Commando gotcha. in Commando. Yeah, no, no, no. I know who she is now. Uh, Joanna Pacula, Rosanna Arquette, Kelly McGillis, and Madonna. This is... Was this Universal? This is Fox. They put, spent $15 million on this. Robert De Niro, who really, really wanted the role of Jack Lint, but ended up getting Harry Tuttle instead. They had to build Robert De Niro his own little set because he wanted to act in it and he wanted to really get himself into character. And Terry Gilliam was was bemused by this man. He was like, I don't get why you need to be like this. You know, I just sort of uh, remembering... um, uh, Lawrence Olivier when he was asked you know how, how do you do what you do on stage you just act dear boy I think it was Olivier anyway um, but you know if you're not a method actor watching method actors at work you can be like this is a bit elaborate isn't mm. it didn't Gilliam said something about method acting but I don't think it was in relation to Robert De Niro oh. wasn't it to do with oh that was it yeah when he was talking about Ian Holm mm. he said that he ended up inhabiting this sort of very nervous agitated part so yeah. much he did this British version of method acting. That baffled me a little bit. What's the method acting is kind of international, isn't it? I don't know. Apparently, Americans invented it. Daniel Day Lewis. Well, he would have said, uh, De Niro does it, doesn't he? So yep. he would have seen it with him. Yeah. Um, and the person offered the role of Sam Lowry originally, and this, is, this would have made for such a different movie. Imagine it Tom Cruise. This, guy, this nervous British man we've been describing the whole time. That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. We had you followed, Tom Cruise. You had me followed. He's way too intense. He really is. And I'm now thinking of Tom Cruise playing Arthur Dent, and that doesn't work either. I feel like he could do it now, but he'd still be a parody of himself as yeah, Tom Cruise. he really would. Yeah. And especially then. Especially then. When he was the hot shit. He was... He was maverick. Was I was going to say he'd done flipping Top Gun at this point. And Risky Business. Oh, God. If Rebecca De Mornay had got... Top Gun was 86. Oh, so yes, he was, was about after. to be maverick. About to be maverick. Um... But yeah, Rebecca De Mornay is... Um, if she, Rebecca De Mornay had... Oh, this Risky Business was 83, so you could have seen a on-screen reuniting of De Mornay and Cruz in Terry Gilliam's Brazil question mark? That wouldn't have made any sense. It would not. At all. It would at not. All. Anyway. Um, so... Although the thematic elements still stand, because Lana in Risky Business is clearly some manifestation of... Um, 
Tom Cruise's repressed anima as well. I need to see that movie again. I haven't seen it since I was uh, uh, about his age. No, we watched it a few years ago. Did we? Yeah. He drives the car into the lake, doesn't he? Uh, possibly. All I can remember is the scene on the train. He drives it backwards after they're trying to run it backwards, after they've driven home backwards, and it didn't make the motor go backwards. You may be thinking of Ferris Bueller. I always think of Ferris Bueller. <laughs> anyway, um... So Sam starts a paperwork snowfall in his place of business, uh, uh, which is kind of lovely to watch. The, uh, the, the, the lab rats are all, sorry, the cubicle mice are all running out and going, oh, there's paper everywhere. Does this mean we don't have to work? Because they've been like taking time off to watch an old movie all the time. Like, you know, they want to watch a movie so much and they're not allowed. And it's always this sort of like, everyone back to work. Get, get, in a, get to your ants. Which reminds me, actually, that... Time to cut a rug, see? Oh, no, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave the rug just the way it is, Weaver. Step back, ladies. I'm going to ask one of these workers to dance with me. Oh! What a bunch of losers. Mindless zombies capitulating to an oppressive system. Hi. Want to dance? Absolutely. Follow me. Don't the idea that they've taken a Brazil-style tune and turned it into this is your daily exercise music. Mm-hmm. By the way, that's how you do a reference for the grown-ups. Yeah. Not Godfather. You talking to me yeah. from the Godfather? Mm. Mm. <laughs> Literally getting Martin Scorsese as a shark with eyebrows <laughs> or something. I can't remember that awful film. Anyway, so um, we've got to rush you. We've got to git surf you through the end here because we're now approaching two hours. We were supposed to make this an hour, but a good hour. And it's been a good two you hours. You can edit instead. it down to a good hour. No, I can't. It's too good. Okay. If it was bad and some good, I could edit it down to a good hour. But it's all two hours of good. If it was bad, we wouldn't have kept going for two hours. True. True story. Anyway. You're getting your worth out of this one. Yes, you are, Jameis. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's uh, um, Tuttle returns to uh, help out Sam and uh, Bob Hoskins and his... Is it Bob Hoskins? And his little mate? Yes. We're going to say Bob Hoskins and his they, little mate. They're the wearing nerf his apartment. plastic suits. They nerf his apartment, like fill it up with um, uh, ducts and he can't even get into it. Tuttle returns, fills their suits up with liquid shit and then they explode. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't even know how you did that, but okay, thank you. And then uh, after the, uh, Jill is suddenly hugely attracted to Sam. She wasn't really before, but now she's like totally is. He brings her up to uh, his mother's apartment and it's a fully functioning babe lair. Right. Chicks are helpless against you its powers. You want flipping symbolism. I'm going to bring you back to my mother's house uh, to pork you. Uh, I'm sorry. That tells you way more than you need to know about a person. Just... Throw up a little bit in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, but now, like, considering how this happens at the end, considering what happens at the end, I feel like the sequence where Jill is suddenly hugely attracted to Sam, basically from that point onwards, that should all be incorporated into the end sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the torture sequence, the dream sequence, basically. Okay, let's let's set the scene for you, folks. He's about to get arrested. 
and he's about to get tortured and his mind goes elsewhere and the whole like last moments of the movie are a dream wherein he escapes but he doesn't escape he is trapped still in the torture chamber and his mind is gone and yes folks you might be feeling that that's a bit fucking familiar because Zack Snyder went "Mm, I think I'll be having some of that thank you and then he shut it out into sucker punch that's literally 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 the end of sucker punch yeah and also I'm going to say this him and Gilliam have got the same warped perspective on that ending that somehow it's a happy ending right I've got I will come back to that because I have something to say about that Gilliam said it's actually happy because he's humming to himself he's escaped he's got one over on them I will come back to that. Okay. Okay. But yeah, like at this point, basically when Jill finds him attractive and wants to have sex with him and they do in fact have sex, that should all be part of what he's imagining. I think personally he never got out of the ministry. I think that whole scene where he's running away from the guy who wanted to see his ID mm. and Jill is being held at bay by the um, guys. So all the scene with the truck and everything. And then he comes in and basically he does what up till this point he has only seen Tuttle do. Yeah. He comes in as the rescuer. He comes in as the hero. Tuttle is kind of the, is emblematic of everything that Sam wants to be. He's out of the bureaucracy. He's mm. away from the paperwork. He's a hero. He swoops in and he saves people. Mm-hmm. Sam has shown multiple times that he wants to be a rescuer, that when people need help, he comes in and helps them. He helps Kurtzman. He helps Helpman when he needs to piss and he can't get out of his wheelchair. Yeah, yeah. Sam has to go and help him. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to be a hero. So everything from the point at where he stands up and becomes the hero by rescuing Jill from the guards, that could very easily all be in his head from there on in. Yeah. But um, that's clearly not what Terry Gilliam's thinking. He's filled this film with dreams where the dreams are very clearly delineated and real life is supposed to be real life, but real life is so dreamlike and whimsical anyway, Mm -hmm. it may as well all be a dream. Yeah. Um, So, like, the dreams that you see are dreams within dreams. And these are interpretations which Gilliam would just go, ah, I think you're overthinking it a little bit. (laughs) Or something, maybe. But, uh, yeah, it just, it feels like the moment Jill finds him desperately attractive and wants to get him wet. um, That's fantastical. That's fantastical, because there's no reason for her to. He has not exhibited reasons. a wig in his mother's apartment that looks exactly like the long blonde hair of the woman in his... And she puts it on for him to say, would it, like... Mm. Yes, right, okay, that, magically knowing what he wanted without him having to say Bingo, it, doesn't make any sense. But it is a manifestation of this whole, you know, the, the ideal woman, um, because if you are emotionally repressed and have absolutely no idea how to verbalise what you want... She already knows. ...you don't even know what you want, yep. of course your ideal woman is going to know exactly what you want without you having to say it. Indeed, because she's psychic. Um, so he gets her up to her, her, his mum's apartment, and she's DTF at this point. And then he's like, whoop, hold on, I'm just going to go off on a side quest. And he really does, he leaves her there and goes off. This is like my dreams. My dreams are I'm like, I'm almost going to have sex. No, I'm going to go and do something else. But it's always like, I've got to go do some minutiae. And it's always like, no, I really want to go back to do that thing. Like, that, like at that point in the film, he should have been desperate to get back to his mother's apartment for it to be like an accurate dream. But he's off doing other stuff. And it's still not accurate because it's like, how do you get that? And then how do you get that? 
That's like we are guilty at this. I am guilty at this point of objectifying her as much as the film is at this point. She is a literal prize for him. Mm-hmm. In a few minutes' time, when he gets back to her, um, she, he wakes up in the morning and she has wrapped herself in nothing but a pink bow for him to unwrap as one of these Christmas gifts. Something for the executive, sir. And it's uh, wow. She's not even a person at this point. She's just a present. Yep. Just a, like, just for you. Yours to enjoy. Like an eclair. Back to black books again. Um, but, I mean, he thinks what he's doing is very important, but actually what he's doing is getting sucked back into the bureaucracy. What he disappears to do is to, to try fake her and death? get... Yeah, basically to try and get these pursuers off their back. Yeah. Because at this point, as far as he's concerned, they're chasing after Jill. I don't think he's twigged that they are coming after him as well now at this stage. Yeah. But he goes back to his office. Um, he um, uses the computer system to basically make it look as though Jill has already been killed. Yeah. Um, and he marks all... All her files as excised and completed and um, and inoperative, mm. and basically thinking that means everybody will go. Oh, actually, we're looking at the computer printout. She says she's, it says she's already dead. Call off the search. Considering how confused they get when a fly gets in, that mm. actually stands to reason. It does. But the point is, he's trying to play their game. He's not breaking away from the system, which is what he's meant to be doing at this point, mm-hmm. is, is going, you he's know what? He's trying to game the system. Fuck all that. You know what would really help Sam reconnect with his visceral experiences right now and get some emotional connection? A little bureaucracy. Fuck. Have some sex. That's what you're here for, right? That would have broken the spell. It would have broken the the system's hold on him. This is my way of looking at it anyway. And would have then allowed him to move on. But because he gets sucked back in, he tries to play one desperate hand Mm. that's their way of playing things. That dooms it. Right. So then they, uh, when he comes back, she's wearing his mother's wig. Mm -hmm. Oh, fucking hell. And um, and she says... Another like line where you're like, oh, what the fuck, Terry? Um, He says, I've just uh, filed the paperwork. You're dead now. And she goes, careful, little necrophilia. And it's like, what? I mean, that's black humor. I love it. But it's like so, like, no. mm, Like, okay, that's kind of an awesome woman to make that joke. But we've seen nothing more of her. So we don't know if that's her humor or not. Again, it's... She knows exactly what he means without him having to explain it. Jill does not come from this bureaucratic background. No. She wouldn't necessarily know that that was what he meant. She's a delivery boy like Fry. He's Leela. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They need to make friends with a friendly, thieving robot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my, no. <laughs> um, Frankly, this tripod could do with another leg. We should do a Futurama show. It's I mean, we wouldn't watch all of Futurama. We no, know we, it we'd all. Have to, we'd have to pick some choice episodes. But uh, just, like, cover favourite bits. Mm. It's great. Get just, Lyra it's on such talk a about good show. Zap Brannigan, it's, she it's, hates. It's, I think it's one of Lyra's absolute favourite shows, mm. and that's, that's a good sign for a kid. Oh, another one we're going to do, which you guys might want to contribute to if you want us to do this, is How to Raise a Geek. And it's just... Our experiences on how we've raised Lyra, I think we're just going to go from, like, the moment of when Sharon was pregnant, just, like, talk you through what some stuff we went through, which people just don't tend to talk about, 
and then the birth and then just like the years up to now like I ate a lot of salad when I was pregnant do you think that helped no it's not not relevant <laughs> not relevant to geek interests not really we're just going to sort of try and tailor it to you guys for stuff that you may like cuz a lot of the people we now know uh, are, are just coming up to this point in their lives it's kind of you know relevant so, like, one thing we say might be of use to you in, in, at some point in your life, but that's worth $25 of anyone's money. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, he, he goes, they, oh, she says, can I have a little necrophilia? And then it sort of views them from above, and this anus of silk cloth closes around them uh, while uh, it's watching through and you pointed out that that's the movie disappearing up its metaphorical ass. It is, a little bit. But it's also, it's very vaginal. Yes. And again, this whole sort of retreat to the safety of the enclosed hmm. mother environment. He's well, you said it's the meeting with the goddess, didn't you, he's where been, he's just going to yeah. stop. Campbell would have a field day with this one. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the idea that um, the the goddess in a, the meeting with the goddess in a hero story is the point at which the hero is given the choice to simply fall into the seductive embrace of oblivion or, um, you know, he's, he's seduced with something that's basically trying to pull him off task. Now, now, my argument would be at this point that, like I said before, the being seduced off task is exactly what Sam is meant to do. Mm. Also, that if you want a hero's journey, this one, the elixir he returns with is just m- being mentally divergent. No longer allowing the system to hold you anymore and going, oh, of course, it's fine. Just send your mind elsewhere because it's all pointless being here. Uh, we're all mad here, you know. When they get arrested by the SWAT team immediately after he's unwrapped her again like from this pink bow, there's the sound of gunshots. And Jill was killed there, obviously, because then it cuts to him and he's alive and he gets later told that Jill uh, died resisting arrest. So they just shot her. What I wonder is why not just shoot him as well? Why put him through all this processing? It's just so much extra paperwork. Um, Oh, he's resisting arrest too. Boom. He's an employee, Hmm. which means that the paperwork for him is going to be more anyway. Um, His mother clearly has some influential friends. Mm -hmm. But what do they want him to say when they're torturing him? I don't know. We never get to see those scenes happen. Uh, The the fact that the torture department is called information retrieval, which is extremely vague, mm. makes me think... That what they're trying to get out of you, it's not anything specific. They're just, it's just information. Just anything you say, they will record and log down. They have these poor secretaries. Oh, yeah, there's a, there's a secretary who are basically just typing in, arg, oh, no, what are you cutting off? Is it my torso? torso. It no, is. My, my precious, precious torso. Futurama again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, then he, um, it cuts to uh, him going through processing and they're accusing him of the many many things he's done and behind on the like behind a screen there's people being um shunted along on a rail on like hanging there on meat hooks or something and it suggests that he's also sort of hanging there um and that was one of the bits cut out of the uh 10 minute shorter american cut Mm -hmm. because it was just too grisly and horrible and and, uh, uh it sustained an image um and they also cut out the next bit, which is Father Christmas, the uh, his wheelchair-bound uh, friend who uh, sort of turns up as Father Christmas, which Gilliam just said, it's really creepy to see people dressed as Father Christmas. And I can't disagree. Okay. And it sort of ties in with the Christmas all the time and thus being totally devalued mm. aspect of it. 
um, who then tells him that Jill's been killed, which means in the 10 minutes shorter American version, you don't know that that definitely happened. Because what we want from a Gilliam film, of course, is less clarity and specificity. Yeah. Then uh, it cuts to him in the torture chamber, which is basically uh, one of the giant uh, funnels of, like, Battersea Power Station or something. It's It looks like Cerebro. It looks like the design for Cerebro. Mm. Like the, the, um, the industrial... Yeah. style cerebro but it's not a set it's a real factory and wh- when they when this is done well it was done really well in Aliens it was done really well in Star Trek the Abrams one people were complaining oh why are you using a brewery for your engine rooms well it looks real it looks like an actual operating working environment because it is they added the uh, water tubes mm. but um, they, they're using a real power station f- funnel thingy here and it just looks amazing Far more than they could ever come up with building it in sets. And um, there's some like similarly large structures in the future sections of 12 Monkeys, which we'll probably never talk about. So if you got $150, folks, you want to hear more Gilliam stuff? There's a lot of fisheye lens with Gilliam. You ever, you ever notice that, folks? Like a lot of that really sickly, queasy, like weird way of looking at people. And there's quite a bit of it here at the end. Um, and if you've ever seen Mystery Men, Kinka Usher uses a lot of it there. And it feels like he was a big fan of Terry Gilliam. If he wasn't, in fact, Tim Burton in disguise. <laughs> Which is plausible. Like people don't like that technique. Don't use fisheye lens and. Un- I mean, even if you want to make people uncomfortable, there are other ways. It's pretty much as a rule. Unless you're making an art house film where you deliberately want people to feel queasy, don't employ that technique. Mm. Especially not for close-ups on faces. It's, it's beyond hideous. Uh, it it um, deforms us like a funhouse mirror. So yeah, it's the end of Sucker Punch insofar as everything in Sucker Punch was all the dream that um, uh, takes place shortly before the uh, lobotomizing. From from what Jack appears to do, you could almost interpret it that Jack goes in with a really sharp pointy thing towards um, uh, Sam's face. Maybe he lobotomizes him on purpose because he knows that otherwise all he's going to do is suffer except extremes of pain mm. maybe well, he's, Jack he's, is being oddly merciful here uh, or what's more likely is Jack did express um, anger and frustration with Sam earlier on w- about the idea that he as in Jack might have made a mistake that basically Buttle who died because mm. um, they didn't realise who he was and so he had a heart condition that wasn't um, wasn't catalogued. So Jack's trying to close so that loop. Jack basically is, yeah, he, Sam is part of the evidence that they cocked up. Hmm. Didn't, I forget, didn't Oscar Isaac have Baby Doll um, lobotomized for exactly that same reason? I believe so. Uh, it was, uh, it was for her father because um, her father wanted. Uh, her father fa- wanted uh, father her figure. incompetent yeah. so that he would get the money that yeah. her, her dead mother that left. That was it. So. Yeah. Ugh. Depressing as shit, basically. So, yeah, similar scenario. stuff. But, we, you know, if you remember, we we looked at, or I looked at Sucker Punch in the same way, that you've got all these characters that are facets of this individual's brain. Yeah. Um, and it actually makes it a much more palatable way of trying to interpret it. Because, frankly, if all of this is real, it's fucking horrible. And, yeah, if reality is like that, then it's probably best to be mad, which yeah. is why Gilliam considers that to be a happy ending. Mm. Now, what actually happens after uh, um, Michael Palin goes in with the all, he gets shot in the back of the head and uh, um, 
or front of the head, uh, and uh, t- pulls off his Bioshock-style um, mask. Mm, which and then, is the same one that the evil Skeksis people were wearing in yeah. Sam's dream. And uh, then um, uh, Sam is, uh, in his madness, is, uh, you know, in his delusion, is rescued by Tuttle and taken through this um, wild situation, which is also empowering, where he's handed a gun and they gun their way out of the... Uh, the um, building, the ministry building. And uh, Gilliam couldn't possibly know this because it was decades before this would become a thing, but he turns the end into a f- effectively a first-person shooter for Sam. He is put in the position of a Call of Duty-style, more of a tutorial scenario where you're being shunted through, like on rails, just to be excited and go, oh, I feel so empowered, when all you're really doing is just shooting a couple of dudes and most of the actual game is being played for you. Um it's it's a beginning to a big game, and then they blow it up at the end, and um, then t- uh, the papers get Tuttle after after Tuttle's rescued him. Some papers sort of fly onto Tuttle to stick to his body, and then he just gets covered in paper and falls to the ground writhing. And then Sam goes to try and rescue him, and then pulls the paper away, and there's nothing there because the paper has consumed him. Symbolism. Yeah, indeed. Well, this this is kind of like I said, Tuttle is who Sam wants to be yeah and the the bureaucracy gets him and swallows him even though he's been fighting yeah. it this whole time buttle the guy who was mistakenly arrested is who sam fears he is yeah this anonymous person who gets killed his because only of the wrong thing on because a of a mistake, mistake yeah. and he's dead and jill is the thing that represents everything that he wants and she's not real so basically what this means is that all the layers and aspects of sam that are sort of this configuration of who he is get gradually disappeared and shot and stripped away. Stripped away until there is nothing left. Yeah. Um, and then he br- uh, breaks in on the funeral that we mentioned before. There's the Oedipus Complex scenario. Oh, my God, is there an Oedipus Complex scenario? Uh, he tips over the coffin as the uh, guards go it's in. It's full of meat. It's full of rotten meat mm. and dog food from the looks of it and marabou yeah, and jelly. Yeah, it's like tripe, doesn't it? Uh, uh, and um, then he falls into the coffin, which is like Scrooge falling into the grave. And um, it sort of harkens back to that. And this is the point where he should wake up and go, oh, I'm going to leave this shitty job. But of course, it's not that kind of movie. And then he instead ends up getting chased down an alleyway by a bunch of homeless skexes. And then he opens the wall. It's a door. And then um, escapes with Jill on a truck into the country. Uh, and they live in a small cubicle house, which was originally on her truck, but she dumped it to try and uh, get the pursuers off their tail earlier. And then it's like, we won, we're out in the countryside, there's no skyscrapers here, it's great. And then some faces go across, and it's uh, all just a delusion. It's all just mental divergence. He never escaped, uh, and Sam is just sort of... Away with the fairies, singing Brazil to himself. And like I say, Terry Gilliam thinks that this is a happy ending. Now, resorting to madness and just allowing yourself to fly away is, in fact, a bittersweet ending. It is not happy overridingly more than it is sad. It is both happy and sad at the same time, which means that it can't just be a happy ending. It's bittersweet. It's a happy ending if... In your dreaming, this is symbolic of basically dreaming while you are trapped in this society. In your dreaming, you actually create 
and you actually share that, even just with one person, you share what you've come up with in your head, in your flights of fancy, in your dreams, in your madness with other people. If you become an artist through your madness and you share that, other people can escape with you as well. They can leave these doldrums behind. They can fly with your imagination. That is the happy ending. And what I believe what Terry meant, meant to say was that if he's the one doing the dreaming and he's taking us with him, then we can share in his visions. And this is part of two trilogies, this film. Uh, it is the second part of the Imagination Trilogy, the uh, first what part being Time Bandits, which is the imagination of a child allowing him to escape his horrible, boring life. Then there's Brazil, an adult. And then there's Baron Munchausen, which is an old man showing a young woman how to escape with the power of imagination in that way. And again, that's madness. Um, but it's also the uh, uh, first part of a probably less whimsical um, dystopian trilogy, the second part being 12 Monkeys, and the third part being The Zero Theorem, which I've never seen, but is a relatively recent Gilliam film, and I really need to see it, um, just to, to complete the set, if anything. Um, so, yeah, my interpretation is that... Um, it is absolutely right for a certain amount of people to go mad while trapped here. And the ones that go mad in the right way are able to share that madness with other people in the right way. One of the things Terry Gilliam talked about uh, in a very offhand and frightening manner was that if he wasn't going to be, uh, you know, be this sort of uh, artist who, you know, starting with Monty Python, um, he thumbed his nose at the system and exposed it for the absurdity that it was, was going to go around bombing buildings. You know, he was talking about how America would be uh, have a lot fewer buildings if he hadn't. Because he remembered being roughly handled by police in uh, uh, at a point in his life. And he was like, wow, I've, I've finally opened my eyes. And now I know what it's like to be black or Hispanic. And it's like, eh, okay. <laughs> I get what you're saying there, but the point is he then went forwards with that anger and expressed that anger in art and got that message across in a constructive way to a few people who really get his work mm. rather than just causing chaos, which is a child's way of reacting to being constricted, to smash things up. Mm. Well, the the... The idea of destruction being representative of freedom, it, it's trashing your room hmm. because you've been told not to do something. It's smashing up vases hmm. because you know that uh, people don't want you to smash yeah. those vases. Which, if you know, if you're a person who has no other we no other manner of expressing that, hmm. then it, it's a legitimate outpouring of, of what you're feeling. It's a, a legitimate expression of emotion. It becomes not legitimate when you start smashing and killing people as well, well exactly. because they're all phonies and they're all part of the system because yeah. you have taken yourself out of the system, but you're still technically in, in the, the system. system. So everyone you're killing is a real person, mm. Neo. Mm. Um, More on the Matrix later, folks, but you may not like what we have to say. You want us to say the first one's brilliant and there's no such thing as the second two, but actually the second two are fairly brilliant and the first one's really troubling. So, more on that later. 
Um, but I think the... For to me, clarify, I love the execution and hate the philosophy of the first one. I love the philosophy and hate the execution of the second and third. <laughs> or more precisely, I loathe the take-home from the red pills of the internet, what they have interpreted from that first one. I think for me, the for this to express in a manner that I would consider to be a happy ending... And I don't even really consider this one to be entirely bittersweet, frankly, because I don't think that the dream into which Sam escapes is massively helpful for him. He doesn't save anybody. No, he, it's just a, a, a quiet, peaceful little hobbit hole. Yeah, if Jill... He dreams of being Bilbo. If How ironic that saved. his boss is Bilbo. I know. Um, and also that he's Arthur Dent, who was also Bilbo. But slightly better than Bilbo because he's also got someone and Bilbo yes. was always very lonely indeed um, but yeah if, if if Jill had somehow been saved by virtue of Sam being recaptured then that would have felt to me like a bittersweet ending yeah. Sucker Punch does feel like a bittersweet ending because although it's horrendous for Baby Doll um, Abby Cornish whose name escapes Sweetie me, Belle Sweet, Sweet Pea Sweet Pea Sweet Pea gets away they all have my little pony names they do kind of yes. <laughs> They do. Oh my god. Yeah, they totally do. Anyway, it's Zack Snyder's way of saying, "See, we infantilize women." Thanks to you. Yes. Continue. Did he insist on painting the cutie marks on himself? <laughs> People won't even see it. It's on my butt. <laughs> yes, I know. Rubs hands together. Anyway, moving on. You'd have a job. Abby Cornish is ten feet tall. <laughs> You need a step ladder. <laughs> yes. Also, you'd have to make sure she wasn't going to kick you off the step ladder when you were halfway through. Oh, I'd pay good money to see that. Yes, indeed. Anyway. Anyway. Um, yeah, but um, ultimately, Sam's uh, retreat into his own mind. It, he's not even in the entirety of his own mind because he doesn't know his He's own gone mind. into a little facet of his mind. Yeah. And he's retreated there and he's singing Brazil to himself and he's happy. And that's all it will ever be. He's created his own little closed system. But we don't... That's the thing. We don't know. We don't know what's going on in his head at that point. We don't see what's going on in his mind at that stage. He could be performing acts of sexual theatre like you've never seen terrible inside that little cubicle. Terrible things could be happening. All we know is he stopped fighting. Really terrible things could be happening? Inside his head. He's happy, obviously. Look, put it like this. Gilliam thinks he's happy. So he's happy. Okay. We've got to at least trust him on that interpretation. That, but, but because Sam's happy doesn't mean it's a happy ending. No, no, absolutely. Anyway, um, let's round up by talking about the vi- various different cuts. Okay, you have oh, to enlighten me on these. Ones, relatively I, as short. As I said, this is the only version I've seen. Yes. Uh, the 142-minute Gilliam's European Cut. This is the version we saw on Criterion Single Disc Edition uh, available in America. And that is 142 minutes long. And that is the version 2C, folks, if you're wondering. Don't worry about the other two. Um, The US cut was put together by Terry Gilliam. This was his compromised version that he made for the studios when they said, we've got to get a version which is less uh, you. (laughs) Okay. The beginning and end of the 132-minute version is only 10 minutes shorter, so it's still a bloody long film with a lot of enforced whimsy in it. Uh, has clouds at the opening and the closing, and they were from excised footage from the never-ending story. <laughs> oh, my God. you got to get them from somewhere. Mm. 
Um, and you'll find out that basically when you're making alternate cuts, you don't spend any money. You just trim. Um, at least that's what studios do. They're, they're, what, these days, yeah, these days they do like uh, go away and film some more jokes. Three months of extra jokes to add into Suicide Squad. <laughs> um, anyway, the samurai section is divided into three uh, rather than one bit, uh, which seems like it might be a laborious. Like you keep going back to this one bit. I think just concentrating on like the 142 minute version sounds superior, but most definitely. Also, there's a flow to that dream section. If yeah. you split it all up, it doesn't have the same consistency to it. Yeah. Um, there's no pink bow bit where she's like, you know, something for the like possibly because they were like, this is a bit objectifying. That's a lot. She's just a prize for him at this point. Uh, there's no list of crimes when he gets, um, like, there's no bit where the guys are on meat hooks or at least on a conveyor belt being moved along in the background. There's no Santa bit, um, so no death of Jill is reported. So basically at the end, it still ends on him going Brazil, but it shows clouds from never ending story. So I suppose it sort of tries to it tries to add a spoonful of sugar and maybe give you less bitter medicine. Mm. But uh, this is it's it's rubbing sugar on a wound. <laughs> <laughs> Which might <laughs> not seem quite it. as much as salt but it's still fucking gritty. Yeah. And if you look at actually what it ended up making, uh it cost 15 million, it made 9.9 million dollars. It was nominated for Best Screenplay at the Oscars that year. And uh, Terry Gilliam, uh, I think, joked that... uh, And also Best Art Direction it was nominated for, which, you know, I think Out of Africa was the one that got all the awards I was going to say, that appears to have been nominated for everything. By Sidney Pollock. Again, as with the Oscars, all what they always do, they nominate these dramas that just get forgotten by history. Like, film students are not talking about Out of Africa, they're talking about Brazil and the films that Brazil influenced. The real things that really have impact on cinema and culture get sidelined by the Oscars over and over and over and over. Do you think in 20 years people are going to be talking about Spotlight or Mad Max Fury Road? Which is a perfect movie. Anyway, the producer's cut. This version is fucking mind-boggling. Now, it will make you happy to learn it was never actually released, but it was prepared for network television, and it has been released in, like, triple-disc box sets, possibly just because of the curio that it is. Sid Sheinberg had this thing put together, and I can imagine... The name sounds familiar. Very big Hollywood producer. Right, okay. I think he's butchered other things as well. Hmm. Um, I can imagine, like, if you... uh, I'm going to read you the list of things that he did. And you can, I can imagine him chomping on a cigar and just shouting out what he wants cut as they're going through. Nah, lose that. Nah, lose that. Snip it off. Da, 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 da. Put something else in there. And then going through the dailies because apparently they used a lot of alternate cuts and different takes to make the film more quirky and less uh, baleful and miserable. So they used a lot of stuff that Gilliam never used at all. I kind of want to see this version. It's 94 minutes long. What? It cut 48 minutes. I told you earlier. You didn't even believe me, did you? I didn't even register. Oh, my God. Okay. <clears throat> okay. I, 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 that's, that seems like a more comfortable length. Oh, yeah. 
But that's I, a comfortable length. It feels I like I could just sip down that Brazil easy. Significant bits would be missing. Delicious, smooth Brazilian roast. Um, but it's called the Love Conquers All version. Oh. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so there's no shop explosion at the beginning. Go straight to the restaurant. Then it says Brazil. Ha- go straight to the restaurant? Bingo. Dude, if you're cutting 48 minutes, you have not got time. That's like the entire beginning of the film. No flying. No time for flying. Um, the fly bit is explained in voiceover. What? It's explained in voiceover. To make it very clear to the cheap seats what's going on. Okay. She's making a face. I was just about to say, it's That's such a shame this Useless for radio, honey. I, I apologise, but good grief. Okay. Um, all the fantasy scenes, all the fantasy scenes are gone. So all of his dreams of being Icarus. All the dreams within a dream. Except some flying in the clouds, which has shine added. It's that Sid Sheinberg. He just loves shiny things. <laughs> It's shiny enough as it is. They added the shine to make it definitely a dream. Are you telling me there were people watching that bit who didn't realise it was a dream? Just have it explained in voiceover. He was flying in a suit of armour. What did they think was happening? I don't know. Uh, I I imagine Sid Sheinberg watched the whole thing and went, what the fuck is happening? By the way, Sid Sheinberg loving shiny things, that's a play on his name. It's not an allusion to his ethnicity. Don't write in saying that's racist. It's not. The dream girl was explained in voiceover. Like, you know, the the reason that he tied up that girl with the short-haired version of the girl. He explains it. When he meets her, he says to her, I've been dreaming Needs another voiceover. Buttle is never revealed to be dead. They eliminate all... They do what the ministry could not. They eliminate all traces of so Buckle's death. So they don't death. get that scene where she's asking about his body. Oh, no. Because oh. she never screams, what have you done with his body? She just hits him with paper, and then they dubbed on the line from another actress saying, lousy bastard, lousy bastard. But there's no reason for her to be upset. Her well, I mean, husband, husband was husband taken away. Yeah, okay. Mr. Buckle. You, you do have that. Yeah. But it's a right to do. So that and the scene with Ian Holm trying to work out what to do with the check. Is I'm assuming forty-eight cut. minutes gone. Jack's daughter <coughs> is never shown, so obviously she never says well, gets I, to say, "Take him off, big boy." I, I won't look at your willy. Yep, I, I right. kind of approve of that one. The, yeah, I, I'm with Sid on that one. Mm. Um, no guard on fire. So that whole thing about well, think about the henchmen was never in there. Luckily, Austin Powers eventually did get there. Mm. With some winning jokes. Uh, then, uh, after Sam ar- is arrested, it's straight to the torture without the mask. I'll say that again. In this Love Conquers All version, where he's tried to sh- just shave off and sand off all the edges, it's straight to torture. And they use a different take of Michael Palin's face looking so that he's not wearing the mask. Because the mask is too frightening. Yep. It is, but it serves a purpose. Right. This next bit is my favourite. Go on. This is... There's no sex scene, is there? There's way better than that. After the ministry building is blown up, a deleted form for Tuttle's arrest shows. They create a form for Tuttle's arrest. And it shows up so the ministry... The paper covers Tuttle and he disappears. 
But that's not symbolism and that's not a dream. That's the ministry dealing directly with Tuttle because of this form. It's magic paper. That's one of the things they do. This world has magic now. There's no dream. Sharon's mouth is wide open. She is like, what? Say what? I I just, I can't, I I am unable to even. What? And then he drives away with um, Kim Greist to that cubicle, the farmhouse. And then it sort of fades back and it's like the farmhouse. And then it freezes on that. And then they transpose clouds in behind it, possibly ones from Never Ending Story, and it plays Brazil. Da, 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 da. It's a farmhouse. Love conquers all. It doesn't go back to him. He's not singing to himself. It's fine. They get away. It's all happy. The problem is, Sid Sheinberg, well, credits cost money. You can't just do them now with, uh, like, really whip them up with. Um, you could do it on Adobe Premiere Elements, basically put together some okay-ish credits. I remember um, that the uh, one of the uh, key crew uh, had his name misspelled in one of the James Bond films, and it was going to cost so much to redo the credits, they gave him a pen. And it was like, sorry about that, here's a pen, we wrote your name on it correctly, or something. I don't know if they wrote his name on it. Do you mean they gave him a pen to fix it himself? No. They just gave him a pen as a sorry. Sorry your name's spelled wrong. It's more it's here's less a, expensive to buy you a pen than a it pen is. Pen and a deed poll. Change your name. Can you see <laughs> to match what's in the credits? Can you see where this is going though? They've got clouds there in the background. Yeah. And they've got the credits. But the credits roll over the torture chamber. Oh. And it's sort of hazy, so you can't exactly see what's going on, but the credits are going up the screen with the clouds there, sort of like, viv- like, sort of half in, like, sort of like half in focus for both of them. And so you can sort of see the names. So it's like, Brazil, here's the names of all the people. And if you look really carefully, you can actually see poor Sam just sitting there singing away to himself because um, he's still in the chair. So we can't even get away from this one thing we're trying so desperately to avoid. Sid Scheinberg, you are a piece of work, sir. Well done. <laughs> that is quite impressive defacing of art. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm kind of inclined to get hold of the three-disc box set now to, mm, to get that. Just to see that. The Watch blue- somebody wiping their ass on the Mona Lisa. Folks... If you buy the Blu-ray in the UK, and I'm fairly certain in America as well, um, it's the 132-minute, 10-minute shorter version. That's not the one you want. You're better off getting the Criterion Edition American one, which is I don't believe has been available in the UK, and playing that on your region-free DVD recorder, because most DVD recorders and DVD players in this country are region-free. You don't want the 132-minute card. Probably. You, no, no, you don't. I'm going to say right now you don't want it. Which is a real damn shame that the only version in HD is the shorter version. Now, they made a Criterion Edition Blu-ray. But Criterion like to region-lock their Blu-rays. No one must ever have this lovely Blu-ray of Brazil in the UK, we won't allow it. Why? What could you possibly gain, Criterion, from having Rushmore in the States, but not in the UK, so that Rushmore doesn't get a Blu-ray at all? 
not even like a, 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 a version with no uh, no extras at all. Um, it's we've only just got Tenenbaums in the UK, and if if it sells, maybe they'll release Rushmore. But region locking Blu-rays is a dick move, especially if you are the purveyors of films to fat like true genuine appreciators of cinema. It is your remit to get that cinema into their hands, to get it into everybody's hands who cares. Those outstretched hands dying for the right kind of films. Everyone else is just like chewing on the Transformers cud. They're cow people, that's fine. They can enjoy that, that's fine. Give us the films we care about, the real, like like the, the, the experiences that other people don't appreciate. We love Avengers and Transformers. Well, we don't love Transformers, but we love Avengers as well. But... For the love of God, the smaller B, C, and D movies really need that love in the secondary market. Because uh, um, it's it's now getting to the point where some films are not getting UK Blu-ray releases, just new films. Edge of Seventeen, not in the UK in Blu-ray, only on DVD. Uh, Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, not in the UK on Blu-ray, just DVD. That's going to be a thing now as Blu-ray becomes more niche. It means that we can still buy it in HD to stream from Amazon, which I feel like is going to become a thing I now have to start doing mm. because I can now tell really when something's SD versus HD. And it, it, if it's a drama, it might not be imperative. But like I bought the Iron Giant in HD before the Blu-ray came out, before the Blu-ray was even announced, because it was like I can't go my whole life without having the Iron Giant in HD. It's crazy. So, Criterion, if you're listening, whatever reason you've got to absolutely region lock your Blu-rays, I'm just saying right now, just abandon it. It's not good enough. You're hurting people who love film. Anyway, it's been two hours, 37 minutes. That's a ridiculous amount of time. That's even longer than Brazil. We're going to stop now. We hope you've enjoyed this, folks. We hope you guys... Well, with Jameis, we hope you felt like you got value for money there. You certainly got me thinking and talking about Brazil more than I ever would in my life otherwise. Thank you, guys. It's been a, a real experience. And a um, bittersweet ending, I think we can probably say. And uh, I, um, I'm more of an appreciator of Terry Gilliam than I was before. So that's good. We'll treasure him for his last few years of being alive and hope against hope that he can finally make Don Quixote. Although it's almost... As I said to you the other night, uh, it's almost wrong if he actually succeeds in making Don Quixote because isn't the whole point to constantly tilt against the windmill and never actually destroy it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, so I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, school's Out. Oh, wait, there's more. Because what Brazil did is inspire. And there is one movie in particular which it inspired. And I, I said earlier that you know, would it have been possible to make Brazil and actually make it palatable? Yes, if you focus on the fact of just a little office worker schlub of a guy who falls in love with a woman who is like an angel. And um, it sort of pulls himself out of his little... Cubicle cube job, and and fly off and and you know come with her to actually accomplish something, and that actually happened by people who clearly love Brazil. Wally.
literally has in the teaser trailer the Brazil music. Oh my god, of course. Wally is Brazil done right for mass audiences. And there you have it, folks. You might even say that at the end, when um, Wally's memory goes. That's that's the retreat, only in that it doesn't stick. Because she's real and she comes back, rather than being gone, mm. he restarts. I was going to say, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe that whole... The he end he where... is able to form that relationship with, mm. with his other side. That Sam because Eve has agency. Eve makes many decisions in that film and decides to fight for what Wally was offering. Mm. She brings half the thread and half the energy and then they can mm. bring them together. So, yeah. After you've seen Brazil, folks, go watch Wally again. You will smile. Wally. He even watches old movies. Twilight beams the skies above 